Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? If I had to give it a word specifically to describe whatever emotion that's going through my mind right now, I'm going to say Twitter-pated. <laughs> Twitter-pated! Wowzer! Uh, we were just talking, uh just before we hit record, about Dave Grohl, and I'm still not calmed down enough to start the show. It's true. <laughs> and you know what? I'll say this. That's on me. Yeah. I should know that much like you don't overstimulate a child before bedtime, no sugar, no <laughs> riling them up, I should not mm-hmm. be bringing up Dave Grohl to you right before we hit record. That's my fault. No. Uh, I <laughs> I'm an adult. I should be able to... I should know. I should know... Portion out your candies, limit your sugars. Like, <laughs> think of Dave Grohl as just an adult. Like, I should be able to focus these things for myself, but I'm barely an adult. Well, listen, you're in good company because uh, neither am I. Neither am I. Um, speaking of which, speaking of not being an adult, now this is a shocker. This is something I did something today I've never done before in my life. Truly. I forgot to eat. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I had one of those days that it started, my day started very early. I was at an appointment at 8 a.m., which, by the way, is not, that's that's not human, in my opinion. Nothing needs to happen before nine, nine, no problem. Eight? Come on. Um, Anyway, so I'm at this appointment at 8 a.m., uh, it, it work related. It's, it's all good. But anyway, uh, and then I came home and it was just like thing after thing after thing after thing. Like it was just one of those days where there was a lot of un, unexpected bogeys, all positive, but we were about to record. And then I was like, why does my head feel so dizzy? Why do I feel so weak? And it's like, cause you haven't eaten in 10 hours. That's why <laughs> you dink. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your uh, usage of the term dink. You're so welcome. Uh, good God. No, I, I get it. It's it's like a hard, hard research day where you're in it. Yeah. And then you kind of ignore everything around you. And then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, how is it? Oh, I, where did the last six hours go? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I'm... I'm in a weird, like, I woke up this morning 
with the hard belief that it was Friday. <laughs> oh, that's the worst. Let me tell you, dear people, it's not. <laughs> it's not. Today, <clears throat> um, today is Tuesday. Yep. Which is fun for anyone who listens to this when it drops, because it's Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, but we're we're recording this on a Tuesday, so halfway through my day, I suddenly realized, oh, it's not Friday. It's not even close <laughs> to Friday. Like I'm closer to last Friday almost than I am to next Friday. So I'm like, wait, yeah. ah, what a bummer. Really brings down the energy. And I turned to my husband and went. It's been so long of a week, I thought it was Friday. <laughs> it's- That's like my, my own favorite joke, which no one laughs at ever. But when I talk about like how, <laughs> at times where I've been single and I haven't been really, there's been no kind of leads on a on a sure. someone to make me not single. My joke has always been, it's been such a long summer, it's already fall, which I think <laughs> is very funny. But again, people are always like, what? What I think is that you're ahead of your time. Hey, now what I think, and by think I mean I know, is that, uh, dear listeners, you're in for a wild ride tonight, and the answer, why, Lauren, is that I barely ate all day, slammed a frozen burrito, and uh, gluten-free burrito, and now I'm on the sauce, and it's been a while since I've drank on this show, Yeah, I felt like, you know what, tonight's the damn night, and I already feel myself, I've had like a a finger and a half of wine, like barely any wine, and... (laughs) <laughs> I'm loose. You know what I mean? Like, I feel buzzy. It's not, this isn't my product moment. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I don't know what's not to be proud about a grown woman shouting, I'm loose. <laughs> I feel buzzy. <laughs> I like the term, I like the term, I feel buzzy. Loose, I loose and buzzy, the Lauren Ash story. Um, <laughs> I know, I, I don't want to put that out there. It's, it's taught. Not, we're not talking about it. We're not talking about it. <laughs> Everything's fine. Anyway, uh, point being is, I was going to ask you what you're drinking over there, but I've butted in front of you, and I'm telling the world, and by world, I mean, you know, the people who are listening to this right now. Of course. Uh, this is a Grenache Blanc. It's a South African white wine. It's hey! Called, it's Wisdom Point, is, and it's delish. And they're not paying me to say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice. Sure. That's good. And good God, I get asked first all the time. You should get a chance to get in there. But you ask me and then I get to answer first. So it's, again, you know, oh, you know I what it is? Oh, I barely ask. It's the alcohol talking. That's what it is. <laughs> I'm excited to see you. We didn't record last week, which does not mean that we weren't working yeah. our butts off, which we were. But uh, I feel like it's been so long. Oh, my God. I'm already at that level of drunk. It's been so long <laughs> since I've seen you. I missed you. <laughs> missed you seeing your face. Bye. I can't wait for this. I can't wait to see where we're at an hour from now. Oh, God. Uh, this is, is going to be <laughs> one and two energy, which I am here for. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, Hootenanny. I still don't remember those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. boy. Wow. What a romp. Yeah. But anyway, this brings me to my question, which I, again, so rudely butted in front of. But what you drinking over there? Oh, I I didn't go nearly as fun as you. I, uh, just a water. Mm -hmm. And then a beautiful, refreshing lime Slurpee. Again, 7-Eleven doesn't pay me in any way. I'm not even asking them to. Just a (laughs) 
couple of free drinks. <laughs> if a machine shows up on my doorstep, so be it. The point is, oh, yeah. I couldn't deal with that upkeep. The point is, mm-hmm. I, I mention your product even when I'm not drinking it on yeah. the show. So I should, we should reach out. 7-Eleven. Have we tagged them in anything on the socials? No. <laughs> what are we Look, doing? okay, it's on us. It's on us. Unless someone high enough up in the company that they're accepting emails, unless they hear it. But like, I think, that's a shot in the dark. But I think if if your goal is some free Slurpees, I guarantee you that the social media worker has the ability to make that dream happen. You know what I'm saying? I'd like to think so, because I have to tell you the amount of money, and I can show them my app that I use because I have the 7-Eleven app, because of course I do. I didn't even I know can, they had an app. I can show them. Well, see, here's the, here's the, the thing about that. They brought the app out few years ago and it part the whole deal was for every six that you buy your seventh is free and sometimes all five of us would get a drink so i'd be that much closer to a free one uh and i lived for it and your free one is always like your most expensive one which is never how that goes usually it's your free one is the cheapest one on there right but it was always the big one and i love it then they've decided to get rid of the so many, and then you get a free one. Now you just get points. And after so many points, you can buy rewards, but you can only buy, there's four sizes. You can only buy the two in the middle. So now I never get mine free anymore. So it's upsetting. I could get a smaller one. You're right. I'll just be sad about it. Unless there was the day that I did two smaller ones so I could have two different flavors. (laughs) And back to back them, and I was riding a sugar high <laughs> like no other. Oh God! So that so the point is, you may get tipsy. I'm gonna go into some sort of sugar high, then sugar crash. What a journey this is gonna end up being. Two things you said back to back them, and all I thought was ass to ass. That's not <laughs> how I need to start this podcast. I don't need to come in that hot. Requiem for a dream was. Nowhere on my no, on my radar, but never is. And then you said sugar high, and all I could think of was sugar high. Gotta have it, really need it to get by. Shout out Empire Records. Um, <clears throat> not shout out Coyote Shivers. And if you want to know why, check out one of our Patreon episodes. That's right. That's right. That's right. Uh, I shouldn't be saying this publicly. We're not supposed to out people that are on the celebrity dating app. But there is a, there is an Empire Records uh, person I've seen on there whose name sounds like Shmani Schmidtworth. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> anyway, what am I doing? Oh, this is this is I, chaos. <laughs> it's uh, delightful chaos right out the gate. I mean, <laughs> what I like is that the sell- there's been this selling sunset uh, kind of controversy because one of the gals on there talked about how uh, Ben Affleck apparently was on R- the Raya app, the celeb dating app, quote unquote, although it's not just celebrities sure. anymore. And he had asked her out, apparently. Uh, anyway, she said this on the show. And then, of course, there's some debate and I, no shade to this to this gal at all. I'm not throwing it. But some people have been like, why did you bring that up just to tell people that Ben Affleck hit on you? Like, and I, I, I think it's like, yeah, and, and also like, who cares? I mean, I give all the power to you anyway. Um, 
I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen anyone uh, like Ben Affleck on there is the point. But who I have seen is someone whose name sounds like Shmani Schmidtworth. So thank you so much for that. Uh, also, if if Ben Affleck hit on me, I'm telling the world. Yeah, I'm like that's her prerogative. If she wants to scream it and whatever, like God bless you. You should. Yes. Ah. Uh. That being said, it. if there are any celebrity males listening to this, I am a vault and I don't need to scream it from the from the heavens. That's not who no. I am. I'm just saying be who you are. And if that's who she is, God bless her. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I get yeah. that. I mean, I I would be more willing to scream it from the rooftops if it was before his massive back tattoo. But I'm also willing to say it after. <laughs> <clears throat> you know what I love is is we came into this and you were like, I don't know, what are we going to talk about? And I never fear. <laughs> I never fear that we're going to have to find anything. Mm. Yeah. Um, that being said, we did have one thing prepared. Uh, not prepared. By prepared, I mean we wrote three lines on a paper. That's, that's the <laughs> the amount of research we bring, like the level of research we bring to the rest of the show. We just don't have yeah. it in us to plan this top part. Oh, it's God, too much. No. So again, you get three words on a paper at most. But yeah. uh, this episode, of course, is Bonnie and Clyde. And what that made us think yeah. about was ride or die moments in our friendship, sisterhood, yes. uh, familial bond. Um, and Christy did bring up a moment that I uh, do treasure very deeply. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you could think of any other ones, but the number one for me, the one moment... Where it was like, what's happening? I mean, you were on board. Um, I <laughs> I was getting married. Yes, we all know. Yes. Uh, and it was the morning of the wedding. And I, we had decided we wanted Tim Hortons, I think. I think that was the plan. And I was fairly new to driving, because I was driving later in life, uh, <laughs> and I took a wrong turn, and we ended up on the highway. That's right. And, <laughs> and I realized my mistake, <laughs> and we're kind of like about to merge on the highway, and I thought, oh shit, well now what? And dear listeners, that lovely woman over there, <laughs> did she go... Oh my God, what's happening? We, we have to turn around. Did she panic in any way? No. Cool as a cucumber. She just goes, are we making a run for it? <laughs> and I, I said, no, I, I genuinely just took a wrong turn and we ended up on the highway. And she was like, because for real, we can go wherever you want to go. <laughs> there was no hesitation. Nope. No hesitation at all. I wasn't leading her either way. It was, no. It, is this what you're doing today? You're getting married? I couldn't be happier. Is this what we're doing today? We're running away from the wedding? Couldn't be happier. Like, it was just like, <laughs> she's the driver, literally and figuratively. I'm yeah. just there to be supportive. And and yeah, yeah, that was an amazing moment. Oh, I thought we were, I thought we were making a run for it. It's how, it's just the coolness with which she was like, is that what we're doing? And I swear to God, I was expecting like a credit card to like come out of her cleavage and her to be, <laughs> or her to be like, here's a wad of cash. 
I'm prepared. Our suitcases are in the trunk. Like I expected something. Just in case. Yeah, just in case. Just in case. Uh, I did find a way to turn around and uh, got us to where we needed to go on time. But the point is, it was that very beautiful moment where I was not even thinking. And I, I mean, good God, I was getting married. I don't think I was in my right mind all day. I didn't eat that day. That that's <laughs> that right. Was the, yeah. I I think that was more stress and nerves. But like the meal was put in front of me. I maybe ate two bites of it and then it was like that's fine and I drank the same amount I normally would drink at a fun occasion but with no food in my body. So I was I was unwell. <laughs> By the end of that night. She ordered the vegetarian lasagna. I did. And I had the coffee-crusted steak. Do you like that that, I remember all the details of the meal? I absolutely do. I remember specifically uh, the vegetarian lasagna because I, I was just ready. Like, for some reason, I'm not a vegetarian. Cheeseburgers are my favorite food in the world. Oh fries cheeseburger you know what i mean yeah fries are in my heart for life but um there is something when it comes to a pasta i want it vegetarian that's just who i am it's my preference so i was like when i saw it was an option i was like do we put it as an option i don't know if anyone else is gonna say it it was literally me and i think maybe his grandmother or something like it was like two of us and i was like ah okay and they put it in front of me and i was so excited to try it And I remember that, like, bite being delicious, but I was like, I can't, because even though the wedding has happened, we still have all of this, we still have speeches to do, and I didn't have the public speaking experience that I have now. Thank you very much, (laughs) Lee. Oh, God, can you imagine if we had been doing this, and then I got married? It would just be, well, I guess we'll record it for the show. Like, it would just... Yeah. Yeah. It would be a whole thing, and the amount of time, like, I would end it with reporting for the wedding. I'm now Christy Oxborough. Oh, oh, oh that, that would have been, been cute. It would have been so cute. It Can you imagine so if I uh, did this show and I was reporting as Christy Ash? That's weird. It's weird. It feels to, weird. I have not used that name in a very, very long time. It's weird. It's weird to think about. But, what I uh, like, though, is that your first initial and maiden name is Cash. Mine is yeah. Lash. Like, it feels like, you know what I mean? Feels right. And together, we yeah. make Clash. Hey! Well, I mean, I'll say this. Uh, I used to do my signature as a C and then Ash. And I was working at a video store, uh, the red one. Not the blue one. Of course. Not that it matters. They both don't exist anymore. I was working at Roger's video. The point is, um, <laughs> I was closing and I had I did a deposit, whatever. And the next day, my boss was like, I have to ask you, why did you write on the bag what was in the bag? And I was like, what are you even talking about? And she's like, you wrote on here that there was cash in it. And I was like, that's my signature. And that was the moment she just went, oh. Oh, shit. Yeah, okay. Never mind. 
And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and so for my current one, when I changed my name to so many more letters than what I used to have. So think about that, people, before you change your last name of how many letters you're adding on to it. But when I did the new one, I was like, can I really sign Coxborough? <laughs> I can't. Uh, and so I've had to, like, put in a middle initial in there because I just I felt like I couldn't sign anything with Cox in it. I know Although what that I, does make sense. Because I'm, again, one glass of wine in and loose, loose and buzzy. All I think is, I can tell you where the cocks burrow. It's not good. It's not a good joke. It's not appropriate. It's too early. I've also said ass to ass in the first 20 minutes of this podcast. <laughs> and, and to be honest, you've never said ass to ass before. <laughs> Ever. No. Even on like the deepest depths you've been. Nope. So we were it's already in a, a weird energy. Pill. <laughs> <laughs> we had a weird energy leading into this. And yep. I got energy. There was only got one place to energy. go. Yeah. This is chaos. Listen, um, <laughs> get on board, dear listeners. Again, if you're new here, this is go back to the glee curse. It's a romp. Um, but if you're not, hey. you're used to this. We haven't done that in a while. I know. It's been falling off, and I want to bring that bit back. Um, what I also love is is that some – dear listeners, this is a shout-out to all of you. Uh, there'll be times where someone will tag me on something, like on TikTok or something, like something that it feels a little more detached um, sure. from, like, our main socials. And then somebody will write something, and then so many people will just comment, like, it's like the Glee curse. It's a romp. And I was like, I love that that's become, like – an unofficial slogan of this show. Very well played, listeners, is my point. Um, all right, we're talking Bonnie and Clyde, and I think you probably all know who we're talking about, but maybe you don't, so I'm going to give you some background now. Bonnie and Clyde were the epitome of ride or die. Together, they committed a series of robberies and murders throughout the American South in the early 1930s. Their story gets compared to Romeo and Juliet, as they were both young and chose death over being apart. So, how did Bonnie and Clyde manage to evade law enforcement for nearly two years? Is it possible that the same people who helped them hide were the same people who got them killed? And for a couple known for their great love, why was Bonnie married to another man throughout their entire relationship? Christy Oxborough investigates. If we were to compare this to our very first episode, hoo what a what a difference a year and a half makes. I'll say that. Yeah. There was no investigates. I think we did a synopsis in those, didn't we? Did we? We did, but yes, Christy Oxborough investigates came from like a year ago, I remember. And I was like, I'd like to say this. And you were like, I don't know. That feels whatever, like self-aggrandizing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, no, I'd like to say it. And then it became a thing. I basically bullied yeah. you into saying that you investigate because guess what? You do. You goddamn yeah. do. <laughs> yeah, great point. Great point. Uh, it's, just, it's just very funny to me that this is where, that this is where we've come. Again, ah, I love that I'm going to be annoyed now to know that I that I either started a podcast over a decade late or I got married over a decade early 
so that I couldn't use, I didn't have that opportunity to use that moment to be like, I'm now Christy Oxborough. That would have been, fuck, that would have killed. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. That's that's where she's at. It would have killed for the three people in that room who actually listened to the show. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mm -hmm. I would tell that story on an episode and then it would kill. But... Listen, what I'm seeing is this. We've got a lot of reenactments to do. We do it as a, as a video <laughs> sketch, much like the Whitey Bulger one, Bulger yeah. one, which is coming. Yeah. Oh, I I can't wait. I've already tried to find uh, photos from um, the trial. The best I could do was some uh, courtroom sketches. So I really want to send you a photo of what your courtroom sketch would look like and be like, this is your outfit. I'm in. I can't wait. Oh, I, uh, oh God, I can't wait. So, oh, we are bananas already. Uh, as a disclaimer, right off the top, this episode will contain mentions of sexual assault, physical abuse, and descriptions of graphic violence. So trigger warning for those who need it. 18-year-old Henry Barrow married 17-year-old Cumie Walker on December 5th, 1891. They rented a farm in East Texas where they welcomed a son named Elvin, but for some reason they called him Jack in 1894. I will never, never understand that. Uh, They also had a daughter named Artie in 1899. The family moved to another farm where they added Marvin, who they called Buck in 1903, and Nell in 1905. The family struggled to make ends meet uh, as their cotton wasn't growing as planned, so they moved to Teleco, which was about 40 miles or 64 kilometers southeast of Dallas. In Teleco, the Barrows welcomed their fifth child, Clyde Chestnut Barrow, on March 24, 1909. Cumie wrote 1910 as Clyde's birth year in the family Bible, but his headstone is listed as 1909. So for just the sake of consistency, I'm going to run with 1909. Uh, Clyde was described as a good boy, playful and full of life. He loved to dance and sing and had a real passion for music, specifically the saxophone. A son named L.C. joined the family in 1913 and a daughter named Marie came along in 1918. The family was never well off, mostly living in a three-bedroom shack and sleeping on makeshift pallets. To help make ends meet, Henry and Cumie were migrant workers at other farms in the area. During their busier seasons, they would send the younger children away for three months at a time to live with an uncle 25 miles or 40 kilometers south. In 1922, the Barrow family moved to Dallas, where they lived in their wagon under a bridge before moving to a squatter's campground. Money was scarce, so Henry collected scrap metal and junk to sell to salvage yards. His sons, Buck and Clyde, stole metal for their father, which was the beginning of Clyde's life of crime. Clyde left school around the sixth grade, or grade six, and never went back after the family moved to Dallas. He worked numerous jobs, including an usher at Palace Theater and at factories such as Brown Cracker and Candy Company, New Grape Bottling Company, United Glass and Mirror, 
Procter & Gamble Soap Factory, and A&K Auto Top and Paint Shop. In his teens, Clyde tried to enlist in the United States Navy, but he was rejected on medical, medical grounds based on the lingering effects from a childhood illness. What particular illness is unknown? The assumption is it was yellow fever or malaria or something along those lines. Clyde took the rejection especially hard since he had already tattooed USN for United States Navy on his left arm. Oh, dear. Yeah, I can't imagine wanting something so bad that you tattoo it and then it doesn't happen. Oh, boy. Uh, in 1926, at the age of 17, Clyde started to date a girl named Eleanor Williams. Clyde was so immediately smitten with Eleanor that he got her initials, EBW, tattooed on his left forearm. Years later, Clyde would adopt the alias Elvin Williams, although he wouldn't use it for long. In late 1926, after a particularly heated argument, Eleanor went to East Texas to see relatives. Ever the romantic, Clyde went after her, taking her mother with him. He rented a car, but kept it longer than he was supposed to, so the car was reported stolen. Clyde panicked and returned home, leaving both Eleanor and her mother behind. He was arrested for theft and sent to jail. The car was found soon after the uh, after and the charges were officially dropped. Throughout the late 1920s, Clyde got into stealing cars, burglary, and safe cracking. The police were so familiar with Clyde that any time a car was stolen, whether it was him or not, they automatically picked him up and accused him of it. Clyde claimed the officers often beat him up to try and get him to confess. Cumey later said, quote, After he was picked up so many times, he just came to have a hatred for the law and figured it didn't do much, if any good, to try and do right. Now, 232 miles or 373 kilometers west of Dallas is the city of Rowena, Texas, where Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born on October 1st, 1910. Bonnie was the second child for Charles and Emma Krause Parker, with an older brother named Buster and a younger sister named Billie Jean. Bonnie's father, Charles, was a bricklayer who died when Bonnie was just four years old, so the family moved to Bonnie's grandparents' farm in West Texas. Bonnie was described as very gifted musically. She could play anything on the piano just by ear. She also had a gift for writing. In 1922, she won an elementary literary contest. Bonnie acted in plays and musicals in school, but was known for her short temper and her desire to act up to get attention. At the age of 15, Bonnie met 15-year-old Roy Thornton. Bonnie was quickly enamored and had their names tattooed inside a heart on her upper right thigh. A year later, less than a week before Bonnie's 16th birthday, they got married September 25th, 1926. She had to get her mother's permission to do so. But despite being married, Bonnie demanded that they go to her mother's house every night. Within two weeks, the couple just outright moved in with Emma. Less than a year into the marriage, Roy started disappearing for chunks at a time. In August 1927, he went missing for 10 days. In October, he was gone for three weeks. And in December, he left for over a year. 
Roy came back in early 1929, but Bonnie sent him away. During his absence, Roy had gotten into petty crimes and increased his drinking. Months after he returned, he was arrested and convicted of burglary. Bonnie, who was no longer interested in being married to Roy, felt it was unfair to ask Roy for a divorce while he was in prison. So the couple remained married. Bonnie even continued to wear his wedding ring until her death years later. Roy Thornton, side note. Roy continued to get into trouble with the law, and in March 1933, he was sentenced to five years for burglary. A week later, he was one of four prisoners who overpowered a guard and escaped prison, only to be caught soon after. On October 4, 1937, Roy was part of a mass breakout involving 27 inmates at Huntsville State Prison. Roy and a second prisoner were killed during the incident. He was just 28 years old. Oh. Ah, boy. That's um, interesting. She had a type, I guess. A hundred percent. I also love that they both had a thing for music, but also both were like, when they fell, they fell quickly and hard and were like, their first thing was, well, I get a tattoo, obviously. Yeah, that's interesting too. So I'm not surprised that they ended up gravitating to each other. Uh, Bonnie worked as a waitress at Hargraves Cafe, where she was described as energetic, charming, and outgoing. In 1929, she started a waitress job at a cafe near the courthouse, where one of her regulars was a postal worker named Ted Hinton. Ted ended up joining the sheriff's department in 1932 and would later become one of the, become a member of the posse who would hunt down Bonnie and Clyde. Oh. Mm-hmm. The cafe closed in November 1929 after the stock market crash, so Bonnie struggled to find work. She went to visit her brother and sister-in-law in West Dallas. On January 5th, 1930, at 105 Herbert Street, a house belonging to Clarence Clay, Bonnie met Clyde Barrow. The pair immediately were drawn to each other. At the time, Clyde was described as likable and handsome, always laughing, and very charming. Bonnie was described as friendly, bright, chatty, and pleasant to be with. During the visit, police came to the house and arrested Clyde for car thefts and burglaries in three towns. He was taken to jail in Denton, where police found they didn't have enough evidence to charge Clyde, so he was transferred in March 1930 to Waco, for burglarizing a business and stealing cars. Bonnie traveled to Waco every single day to visit, which is impressive since it was about 97 miles or 156 kilometers away. Doing that trip every day? Come on. Yeah. Uh, Clyde pleaded guilty and was sentenced to two years in prison. During one of her many visits, Bonnie smuggled a gun into the prison and passed it to Clyde who used it to escape on March 11th, 1930, with his cellmates William Turner and Emery Abernathy. The trio fled to Ohio, where they robbed three gas stations and took all silk clothing from a women's clothing store. Which felt very specific, but... Yeah. To each their own. They stopped at a railroad ticket office and stole $57.50, which is equivalent to like $989 in 2022. 
When they left the station, they got lost in the dark and ended up driving in circles. Four hours later, they ended up driving past that railroad station again, where police happened to be investigating the robbery they had just committed. And a witness, who was there at the time, got the police a license plate number, so when they passed, the police knew that was the car they were looking for. There was a brief exchange of gunfire. The three convicts surrendered. They were taken back to Waco Prison, where they were put in a more secure area that didn't allow for visitors. Clyde was sentenced to 14 years. Oh, wow. Due to overcrowding, Clyde was transferred to Huntsville Prison and then to Eastham Farm, which is now known as J. Dale Wainwright Unit. Eastham was opened in April 1917 and was the first maximum security prison in Texas. It was known to be incredibly violent. According to prison logs, in a six-month period in 1931, 128 inmates were flogged, and more were beaten unofficially. One prison claimed that one prisoner claimed he witnessed a guard kill five prisoners during his time there. The prison used whippings and intense physical labor as punishment. Warning, this is graphic. The field labor was so bad that just to get a break from it, prisoners would break bones in their own feet, cut off their fingers or toes, and some even resorted to cutting their own Achilles tendon. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah. Just to... Just to get a few days to not do it, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm surprised that they even gave them the break, to be honest. I mean, yeah. it feels like they would have got the, the people at the prison would have caught on to that and be like, you work anyway, which feels horrible. Oh, 100%. Uh, East Ham was also known for using prisoners as enforcers to keep other prisoners in line. And those enforcers were given authority to be as violent as necessary and would get zero punishment for their actions. Ed Crowder, who was incarcerated for bank robbery, was used as an enforcer, and for reasons we don't know, he singled out Clyde for some of his harshest treatments. Hmm. Allegedly. Multiple have said this is true, but just allegedly, Clyde was brutally sexually assaulted by Ed Crowder. As part of his punishment. Uh, But no matter what Crowder did to Clyde, he was never punished for it. But Clyde decided he'd had enough. In October 1931, Clyde snuck a lead pipe into the bathrooms and used it to kill Ed Crowder. The prison claims that Crowder was killed in a knife fight with a prisoner named Aubrey Scaly, who was serving a life sentence anyway. Scaly did some time in solitary confinement, but there was no actual investigation into Ed Crowder's murder. In November 1931, Dallas lawyers wrote to the state pardon board claiming that Clyde had been treated unfairly in 1930. His mother, Cumi, also pushed hard for a pardon. She would cry at interviews with reporters and pleaded that Clyde was only 18 at the time of his alleged crimes, so he shouldn't be charged as an adult. He was actually 21 at the time, but 
A mother does what the mother needs to do, I guess. Yeah. Uh, On January 7th, the board said, quote, in view of the fact that Beryl was only 18 when he got into trouble because he pleaded guilty, because he was has has been recommended by all the trial officers, it is the opinion of the pardon board that he may be appropriately given a a parole, God, for the rest of his term, conditioned upon his good behavior and his going to the care and support of his mother. On January 27th, the governor officially signed Clyde's parole papers. He was released February 2nd, 1932. Not so fun fact... Clyde was unaware that his mother was petitioning to get him out. He allegedly cut off two of his own toes to avoid brutal field labor and then was paroled just days later. (laughs) It's like rain. It's, yeah, this is a... Isn't it ironic? Yeah, this is... No, uh, it's just unfortunate. This is yet another... uh, I guess the second Alanis song that we're going to reference on this show. It just is what it is. I just, oh God, I can't even imagine. But I also love that the mother just being upset in the world and crying at reporters and like yelling at a judge was enough to get her son pardoned from a 14 year sentence. Yeah. That's wild. I mean, kudos to her. She, she really pushed it. Uh, Those who knew Clyde before his time behind bars said that prison changed him. His sister Marie said, quote, something awful sure must have happened to him in prison because he wasn't the same person when he got out. One of Clyde's former inmates said Clyde went from, quote, a schoolboy to a rattlesnake. Clyde returned to West Dallas and immediately went to see Bonnie, who happened to have a new boyfriend at the time. Whoa! But when Clyde walked in, Bonnie got up and went straight to Clyde. The new boyfriend realized he was needed to leave. Wow! And he accepted it. Uh, the pair traveled to Massachusetts, where they where Clyde worked as a construction worker. Uh, it was a job arranged by his sister Nell. Unfortunately, Clyde only lasted about two weeks. Then he went back to work at United Glass and Mirror, but Clyde struggled to get into the rhythm of a steady job. During his time in prison, he learned more about bank robberies, like the importance of proper planning and surveillance. And no matter how long he spent on the outside, Clyde couldn't stop thinking about his time at East Ham. On April 17, 1932, Clyde took Bonnie to East Ham, where he sent her in claiming to be the cousin of Aubrey Scaly, the man who did time in solitary for the murder that Clyde actually committed. Bonnie passed along the message that Clyde was planning to break Scaly out soon. The next day, Bonnie Clyde and another former East Ham inmate, Ralph Fultz, stole two cars that would be big enough to transport several prisoners, uh, stopped in Kaufman to buy ammunition... While there, they noticed some guns that were interested, interesting to them, so they went back to the store later to steal them, but were caught by a night watchman who sounded the town alarm. It started pouring rain, and Clyde and Fultz got the cars stuck in the mud, so they ended up stealing two mules from a nearby farm. They rode them until they could find a car, stole the car, left the mules, uh... 
But then the car ran out of gas. Soon they were surrounded by police. Clyde ran. Fultz got shot in the arm. So Fultz and Bonnie surrendered and were taken uh, to a calaboose in Kemp, which is 12.7 miles or 20.4 kilometers south. The calaboose was a very small brick building that consisted of a dirt floor, four walls, a roof, and an iron gate. Uh, I couldn't find exact dimensions, but from photos, it looks at most six to eight feet wide, maybe. Uh, And as always, I will post photos on our socials at True Crime and Cocktails on Instagram and Facebook and at Not Detectives on Twitter. Assuming that Twitter's still a thing, we don't know what Musk has in store. (laughs) I mean, it's still possible he won't, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. We'll see about that. Despite Fultz's gunshot wound, the town doctor refused to help him because one of the cars they stole happened to belong to the doctor. (laughs) He woke up. His car was gone. In place, there was a couple of mules. Oh, my God. He was not happy. (laughs) So he refused to help him. Uh, Fultz was transferred to Wichita Falls, where he was sentenced to 10 years for a kidnapping he had done in Electra. Bonnie was transferred to Kaufman County Jail, where she passed the time writing poetry. Clyde and his new accomplice, Frank Claus, stole some weapons from a hardware store, and on April 30th, 1932, they cased a combination gas station jewelry store in Hillsboro, Texas. Late at night, they knocked on the door to buy guitar strings. They paid with a $10 bill, and the owner... John, I'm not sure if it's Butcher or Boucher, I'm assuming Butcher, uh, went into the safe to get change. John noticed that the men were concealing weapons, so he pulled out a gun. The men fired, and John Butcher was killed. He was 61 years old. Clyde and his gang made off with the victim's gun, $40, and $2,500 worth of diamonds, which in 2022 is equivalent to, like, $839 cash and $52,000 in diamonds. Police put out reward posters for Clyde and Frank offering a $250 reward, which is over $5,000 now. And for reasons I'll never know, the posters listed Clyde's middle name as champion. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. He didn't need the ego boost, I'll I'll tell you that. Clyde's mother, Cumi, would later tell reporters that Clyde couldn't possibly have killed John Butcher, as Clyde was on crutches at the time. And later, when police blamed Clyde for another murder, Cumi said, Oh, it couldn't have been Clyde. I distinctly remember feeding him fried chicken that night in my own kitchen. Oh, Mom. Yeah. She does this a lot. Uh, Two weeks later, Bonnie was put before a grand jury to ask about her involvement in the car and weapons theft. Bonnie claimed she didn't know either of the men, and the charges were dropped. Interesting. Bonnie was released and went back home to her parents. In late June, Bonnie told her family that she had a job lined up in Wichita Falls, but in reality, there was no job. She was just going to meet up with Clyde, who was at... in the moment, trying to hone his robbery skills. He studied maps, 
making himself familiar with roads in Texas, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Missouri. He practiced driving. He wanted to see how fast he could go in certain vehicles and models. He learned how to do fast U-turns in case that he ever had to avoid a roadblock. And he had homemade shooting ranges to practice uh, target shooting. At the time, police didn't exactly have it easy. According to author Karen Blumenthal, by the early 1930s, there were less than 300 police officers in Dallas. And since automobiles were all the rage, there were more cars on the road, and at the time, no seatbelts. So accidents were happening all the time. In 1931, 32,000 people died in car accidents in the United States. And if that wasn't bad enough, Police were also dealing with illegal speakeasies and bootleggers as the fallout from Prohibition. So it got to the point where police were just desperate for new recruits, and often there was zero training. The potential officers were simply asked, do you know the difference between right and wrong? If they said yes, they were handed a badge. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. I'm I'm glad it's changed a bit. Yeah. Uh, and something else to keep in mind about this time frame, the FBI wasn't the FBI yet. Back then, they were just the Bureau of Investigation. They officially became the FBI in 1935. But when the Bureau was investigating a case, it took two weeks to get fingerprint analysis back, so crime solving wasn't exactly quick by right. any means. Right. On August 14th, 1932... Bonnie, Clyde, and Clyde's former cellmate, Raymond Hamilton, were staying at Bonnie's Aunt Nellie's. Deputy Deputy Sheriff Joe Johns was passing by when he noticed a new Ford V8 coupe in the driveway of a very modest farmhouse. Joe felt the car was suspicious, so he knocked on the door and asked about the car. Bonnie said it belonged to the men who were just getting dressed. Getting dressed was their code for... There's trouble outside. Mm. But the problem was, their guns were locked in the car outside, so they grabbed a shotgun from the closet, grabbed their stuff as quick as they could, and made their way outside. The deputy was looking at the car when Clyde and Raymond snuck up on him, and they ordered the officer into their car. Twenty hours later, they let him go completely unharmed. Hmm. Because it turns out, Bonnie and Clyde, or the Barrow Gang, as they would come to be called, preferred not to hurt anyone. They only pulled guns when they felt that either their lives were in danger or if they were at risk of being captured, because Clyde was adamant that he would never go back to prison. Hmm. On October 11th, 1932, in Sherman, Texas, Howard Hall and Homer Glaze were preparing to close Little's Grocery around 6.30 p.m., A man entered the building, picked up a loaf of bread, and asked for eggs and lunch meat. The man then pulled out a gun and took the $50 that was in the register and pushed the men toward the door. Howard attempted to reach for the man, who quickly fired four shots. Howard was hit three times and died at the scene. He was 57 years old. Homer later described the thief as a small man, about 5'6", 20 to 25 years old, with dark hair. When police showed Homer a photo of Clyde Barrow, Homer identified him immediately. Bonnie and Clyde stopped in briefly to see their families around Halloween 1932, and Clyde denied that he had anything to do with the robbery 
or Howard's death. Clyde's sister Nell believed him, saying, quote, He admitted so many crimes to us, often crimes the law knew nothing about. So why would he lie to us about this one? In January 1933, the governor revoked Clyde's parole. And just before that, the Barrow Gang added a new member, William Daniel Jones, known as W.D. He idolized Clyde growing up. He also happened to have an older brother named Clyde, which I'm sure is something psychologist hat like. Uh, W.D. allegedly begged Clyde to take him along. But before they could leave town on December 26, 1932, they needed to steal a car. As they were getting into the car, the vehicle's owner, Doyle Johnson, came out and tussled with Clyde. Then Doyle jumped on the side of the car, causing both W.D. and Clyde to shoot at him. Clyde took a bullet to the neck and fell to the ground. A few miles down the road, Clyde made W.D. climb a phone pole and cut all of the telephone wires in multiple places. Doyle Johnson died the next day. He was just 27 years old. Hmm. When police started investigating the crime, they had no idea that Clyde Barrow or any of the Barrow gang was involved. Police thought the killer was a specific man from Dallas. Then 19-year-old Raymond Hamilton, former member of the Barrow gang, who had been arrested in Michigan in December 1932, was transferred to Hillsborough. On January 6, 1933, Clyde, Bonnie, and W.D. went to speak with Raymond's sister to discuss how they were going to break Raymond out. Unbeknownst to Clyde, local police believed that a specific bank robber might stop by the house, so police were on a stakeout at the house of Raymond's sister. They essentially set a trap for somebody else, and Clyde ended up walking right into it. Oh, Jesus. Without knowing. Um, he looked outside. He saw two sheriff's deputies, an investigator, a Texas ranger, and a de deputy sheriff all walking towards the house. Clyde ran out of the house, shooting on the way, and the officers returned fire. Clyde hit Deputy Sheriff Malcolm Davis, who died at the scene. He was 51 years old. W.D. provided cover as Clyde ran for the car. The trio raced off, assuming they'd be followed, but for some reason they weren't. Their car's windows were broken, but none of the gang had been hurt. But since police were expecting another criminal, they had no idea who Clyde actually was. Soon, armed officers patrolled Dallas and Fort Worth areas, searching unsuccessfully for the unidentified shooter. Soon after, Raymond attempted his own escape at Hillsborough, which got him transferred to Dallas County Jail. He was facing a sentence of 263 years for robberies and the John Butcher murder. Whoa. In a newspaper interview, Raymond mentioned a woman with Clyde, which was the first time that Bonnie had ever been connected to any of Clyde's crimes. In late January 1933, a motorcycle officer named Thomas Purcell noticed a sp suspicious vehicle circling a parked car in Springfield, Missouri. Purcell flagged the vehicle down and pulled them up beside them. The driver, who was Clyde Barrow, pointed a shotgun at him and told Purcell to get in the car. Purcell did as he was told, and they went for a drive. However, he had no idea who his captors were. They used aliases in front of him. Clyde was called Bud, W.D. was Boy, and Bonnie, 
who had newly dyed red hair, was called Sis. It's a, they had an odd dynamic going on. Sure. Eventually, their car's battery died, so they stole a new battery from another vehicle and made Purcell install it. Then they went to an isolated area in Joplin, Missouri, about 71 miles or 114 kilometers away, and let Purcell go completely unharmed. Now, while Clyde and his gang were out running the road, Clyde's brother Buck was in prison. But their mother, Cumi, was, if nothing else, very protective of her sons. Cumi sent a letter to the prison's chaplain saying Buck was needed at home to provide for his three children, and Buck's wife was expecting another baby. The thing is, no, she wasn't. Buck had been in prison for over a year at this point, so even if she was expecting, it very obviously wouldn't have been Buck's, but she was not. Also, his three kids, he technically had three. Uh, Buck had twin boys with his first wife, although one of their sons died in infancy. And then he had a daughter with his second wife, but he wasn't involved in either child's life. I just like that his mother was like, well, he's got three kids. It's like, oh, oh, Cumi, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, But Cumi and Blanche... Uh, I which I think I said, but I'm now realizing I probably didn't. Blanche's Buck's wife. You did not. I'm so sorry. That was a fuck up. No, that's um, all right. Because Cumi isn't the Blanche. I am. But also Buck's wife is. This is going to get weird. Yep. Is my point. Yep. Uh, they sent letters pleading for Buck's release, even asking a judge and some prison administrators to write letters on Buck's behalf. As one of Clyde's sisters put it, quote, there were no lengths through which my mother would not have gone to help any of her kids. But somehow all of Cumi's pushings and lies actually worked, and Buck was released from prison in March with a full pardon. And while prison seemed to harden Clyde, Buck's experience made him want to be a better person. On April 1st, Bonnie, Clyde, W.D., Buck, and Blanche all moved into an apartment together in Joplin. And at first, they lived a fairly normal life. They went to the movies. They stayed up late playing cards. They slept late into the day. The curtains were often closed, but they seemed like just an average group of friends. But soon the boys started to get antsy and started robbing nearby businesses. Then they stole guns from an unguarded National Guard armory. Which feels... Risky! Yeah. Uh, Clyde stole another car, which made Bonnie concerned that they'd get caught. This led to a heated argument that quickly escalated to a physical altercation. But this was classic Bonnie and Clyde. He'd yell. She'd yell back. That would make him shove her or hit her in some way, followed by him quickly kissing her and apologizing. Oh, boy. So the couple that has been romanticized for a century was actually quite toxic. On April 14th, the group started to get ready to leave town when two state troopers showed up at their apartment. Blanche was washing clothes in the sink and Bonnie was writing poetry when the officers arrived. Thing is, the troopers had no idea who the occupants really were. They just assumed that they were kind of suspicious and thought they were like bootleggers or car thieves. So when they pulled up, the troopers asked to see inside the garage... 
The Barrow Gang responded with gunfire. The troopers returned fire, and W.D. was hit on the side. Clyde took a hit to the chest. The group ran to the car. They left their belongings, which included Blanche's bag, which had her marriage license, her camera, and Buck's prison pardon. When police developed the pictures from the camera, they found pictures of Bonnie and Clyde, as well as a picture of Bonnie posing with a gun and a cigar. Basically, the majority of the photos that exist on the internet of Bonnie and Clyde actually came from this camera that they found. Oh, wow. Uh, Both officers were hit during the gunfire. 42-year-old John Wes Harriman, who had only been a constable for a few months, died at the scene. 53-year-old Harry McGinnis died a few hours later. And since officers knew who was at the scene, they started to circulate wanted posters with pictures of Clyde and Buck. Uh, Law enforcement then decided that the Barrow gang was shoot to kill if you see them. Clyde drove 500 miles or 804 kilometers straight, only stopping for gas and to buy supplies to help clean their wounds. When they finally stopped, they found that WD's wound was straight through and Bonnie used a hairpin to take the bullet fragment out of Clyde's wounds. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, Ever the supportive mother, Cumie, of course, told reporters her sons were framed. Two weeks after the shootout, when the state troop uh, with the state troopers, the group was driving around when they spotted a man go into a boarding house in Ruston, Louisiana. The man, Dillard Darby, left his keys in his car, so W.D. stole his car. But when Dillard saw what was happening, he shouted to a neighbor, Sophia Stone, and Dillard and Sophia got in her car to follow them. But they were unable to catch up, so they turned around And Clyde was there, and he pulled a gun on them. Clyde hit Diller with a gun and shoved him into their car. Bonnie grabbed Sophia by the hair and pulled her into the vehicle. With their new hostages, the Barrow gang went looking for WD. They ended up letting Dillard and Sophia go on a rural road in Arkansas and gave them $5 to get home. After a failed robbery at Lucerne State Bank in Indiana on May 12, 1933, the Barrow gang shot at onlookers on their way out of town. Then Bonnie, Clyde, Blanche, and Buck robbed a bank in Okabena, Minnesota, and made off with $1,400, which is like $31,000 in 2022. The Bureau, which had been previously only ever spoken about Clyde, released a memo officially listing Bonnie as a, quote, gun woman who probably shot and killed the Fort Worth deputy sheriff. Bonnie's mother, Emma, was concerned about Clyde's influence, but Bonnie told her, quote, I love him and I'm going to be with him till the end. When he dies, I want to die anyway. Oh, my God. And Bonnie wasn't the only one with a bad feeling about the Barrow gang. When Clyde's mother, Cumi, was asked about them, she said, quote, They're living on borrowed time. Or should we say borrowed time? Thank you. Because they're the the borrows, barrows, borrowed time. It was better in my head. It, you know what? You tried. I tried. Um, Listen, I'm getting a a cuddle attack from a cat here also, so he's throwing me off my game a little bit. 
Listen, wow, so many revelations already. We're only partway through this, and I, again, I've taken a lot of notes. So uh, everybody take a quick break, grab another drink. I know I'm going to. Hit the can, (laughs) and we're going to be right back with more about Bonnie and Clyde on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, Before the break... I mean, I'm not going to get into the things that have shocked me thus far because there is – I am – there's some things about my perception of who they were and who they actually were that are not lining up, which is very cool. Hey. <laughs> very cool. I know. I Look, I I purposely heard that as you calling me cool and I'll take it. I know that I'm not and that's okay. You are. You're very cool. There's a lot of people listening right now that are screaming, going, you're cool. Oh, I. <laughs> That's misplaced, but I'll. I'll no, I'll it's not. It. I'll take it. It's oh, not. boy. Listen, Look, also. Teenagers just in- don't find me cool. I'll tell you that. Teenagers don't find anybody cool except for, I don't know, the hip hops. You know what I mean? The hip hops. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Well, she's got her second glass of vino flowing, and also good news, I just grabbed a little snack of this bag of fuzzy peaches, my favorite candy. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to get a couple out now, so that I'm not rustling. So I'm I'm not rustling around while you talk. So what you're saying is you're portioning candy like I I mentioned earlier. There we go. As as I said before, I barely ate today, and guess what? I'm really feeling it. Anyway, that's the thing. You know what? I find I can go for a very long time, but if I just have like a tiny something, then my body's like, if she's going to treat us like this, we should eat for the rest of the day. Mm -hmm. And then I just, then you just feel like you can't stop. I know it's a disorder. We don't have to talk about it. We know. We know. We're aware. We're aware. All right. What what happens next? (laughs) Oh. Well, at this point, we have couples in a very small space together. So they, of course, start to bicker. They decide they're going to go their separate ways. Blanche and Buck head to western Oklahoma. Bonnie and Clyde head to Dallas, uh, where they finally found WD, who had taken that guy's car and then just went who knows where, and they couldn't find him. They officially found him now. Uh, They plan to meet up with Buck and Blanche at a bridge near Sayre, Oklahoma on June 10th, but they were running late, so Clyde was speeding more than usual. He ended up missing the turn, and since the bridge wasn't yet complete, their car went off the start of the bridge and went, went airborne towards the riverbed. Clyde and WD were pretty banged up and bleeding, but Bonnie was unconscious, Acid from the car's battery splattered on her leg and burned her very, very badly. Oh, my God. Yeah. 
Uh, They took Bonnie to a nearby house, but Clyde refused when the homeowners offered to contact a doctor. While everyone was busy concerned with Bonnie, one of the men from the house snuck out and went to tell the police. County Sheriff George Corey and Town Marshal Paul Hardy went to check it out. When they arrived at the house, they were met with weapons. Clyde and WD took the police hostage. The next day, they finally met up with Buck where they left George and Paul handcuffed to a tree. But now reunited with Buck and Blanche, the Barrow Gang headed to Kansas, where they rented a cabin for two days. They moved into a hotel in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Bonnie's health continued to worsen. She became delirious and fevered. Her wounds were so bad that the bone was exposed in some spots. Oh, my God. A local doctor bandaged her leg and gave her Amatol, a strong sedative. Uh, When police heard about the accident, they assumed Clyde is going to dump Bonnie somewhere because she's going to slow him down. But in reality, Clyde would not leave her side. He fed her. He carried her to the bathroom. Anything he needed to do, he was there for her. Again, though, they were toxic. Mm-hmm. So as beautiful as it sounds, when you dig deep, oh, they were toxic. Uh, a week later, Bonnie still wasn't any better, so the group headed to Dallas to pick up Bonnie's sister, Billy. They would have gone for Bonnie's mother, but police were watching Emma's house. On June 23rd, Buck and WD robbed a grocery store for medicine and bandages. On the way to their hideout, they passed Town Marshal Henry Humphrey on the road as he was headed to the crime scene. Uh, So to prevent him from getting there, they shot at him. He ended up dying three days later. He was 51 years old. The group packed their stuff, including the motel sheets and blankets, left $10 on a table, and left. Clyde drove Bonnie, Blanche, and Billy to the woods a few miles away, then went back and got Buck and WD. The group then traveled to Oklahoma. Bonnie's legs slowly started to heal, but she would never be able to walk on it like she used to. Even though the police were technically looking for the entire entire Barrow gang, Clyde alone was featured in the lineup section of wanted fugitives in the May and September issues of True Detective Mysteries. Old-timey magazine side note. True Detective Mysteries was published from 1924 to 1995. It initially focused on mystery fiction, but after witnessing the public's reaction to non-fiction articles, the fiction pieces were phased out, making it the first true crime magazine. The name was changed to True Detective in 1941. The magazine sold millions of copies during its peak between 1940s to the 1960s. I also find it wild that, like, you think of now and everybody's kind of, like, obsession seems like the wrong word, but everybody's, like, thing for true crime. I guess it never dawned on me that people in the 40s were like, please give us true crime. We want it. So it's just like a guess a natural human thing. Yeah. Uh, on July 7th, 1933, Clyde and Buck raided the National Guard Armory in Enid, Oklahoma, taking cases of ammunition and dozens of rifles, pistols, and BARs, which are Browning automatic rifles, which is Clyde's preferred weapon. 
Eleven days later, the Barrow Gang rented two cabins near Platte City, Missouri, in the Red Crown Tourist Court. Blanche made a trip into town to get bandages and syringes, but she stood out to locals because she was wearing riding boots and riding pants, which was very unusual for the area. So some locals brought this to the attention of Sheriff Holt Coffey. Uh, Holt rounded up some help from surrounding counties, which was a total of 12 lawmen, an armored car, and two submachine guns. Around 11 p.m. on July 19th, the officers made their move. They knocked on Blanche and Buck's cabin door first, and when Blanche answered, she said she just needed to get dressed first, which you may recall getting dressed is their, you know, code for trouble. Clyde immediately started shooting, which was returned with gunfire from outside. Under a hail of gunfire, the Barrow gang made a run for their car, bullets shattering their rearview mirror. Sorry. Their rear window, rear view mirror. That was random. Oh, boy. Uh, Warning. This warning is specifically um, mostly for Lauren. Oh. This is gruesome. Ah. Glass from the window pierced one of Blanche's eyes. Yeah, there it is. Buck took a shot to the left side of his head, and Bonnie's burns reopened. Oh, 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 oh. I don't know if I've ever been driven to almost puking. That did it. Oh, boy. Great news. Clyde and WD managed to go unscathed. Oh, wow. Yeah. With the majority of the gang injured, Clyde sped off, and once again, they weren't followed. This time, though, it was because just days before, the Bureau sent out a memo that said, quote, Unless peace officers are equipped with similar weapons and experienced in the use of them, it is practically suicide for anyone to attempt to combat or capture criminals who use Browning automatic rifles. On July 20th, the gang was seen in a field in Iowa, burning bloody clothes and bandages. They set up camp in a wooded area in Dallas County, Iowa, about 30 miles or 48.2 kilometers west of Des Moines. Overall, the injury seemed okay. Glass was was still stuck in her eye, uh, which is a horror show for me to even think about. Uh, Buck was somehow faring well. The bullet entered the left side of his head and exited through his forehead, so it wasn't fatal, but it went through the part of his brain that affects reasoning and emotion. Clyde and WD stole another car as they knew that one full of bullet holes would kind of stand out. On July 21st, Clyde made his way to town for clothes, shoes, and medical supplies, then grabbed five meals from the diner. People in town noticed him and contacted Deputy John Love, who called a county sheriff. The sheriff knew they needed more manpower, so they gathered everyone they could, which ended up being a posse made of sheriffs and vigilantes from other counties, Some of the vigilantes showed up drinking, and some even felt the need to bring dates. (laughs) Oh, come on, guys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, At sunup on July 24th, 1933, the posse made their move. WD was roasting hot dogs over a campfire when Bonnie noticed the men approaching. Clyde fired a BAR round into the trees, hoping to scare the men off. Some fired back, and WD took a round to the chest. 
Clyde told everyone to get in the car as W.D. was hit a second time. Clyde provided cover as Bonnie helped Buck and Blanche into the vehicle. The gang took off as the posse continued to fire at them. Clyde took a shot to the shoulder. They came to a dead end, so Clyde tried to turn, but he found it difficult because of his shoulder injury. He backed up the car and got it hung up on a tree stump. The Barrow gang made a run for the woods. Bonnie took two pellets to her stomach. W.D. was struck for a third time, and Buck got hit in the back. Despite being shot multiple times, W.D. picked up Bonnie and carried her to a nearby bridge where they hid in some brush. And I know they weren't a couple, but God, that was romantic to me. (laughs) I know, I'm broken. Uh, (laughs) The idea that he was shot three times and the police, like, cops are coming for you and your instinct is, I'm going to pick up that woman and run? I mean, my instinct would have been leave her and go, (laughs) but... I mean, oh, I, I think it depends who it is. I think if it was me oh. there, I think I think your adrenaline would kick in. You'd throw me over your shoulder and, we, and we'd run into the sunset, you know? Oh, my God, you're right. Oh, my God, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Of course, I could never leave you. you I, I just right. found it very beautiful that of the men there, yes. the one who was in love with her wasn't the one who picked her up and ran with her. Nothing to say Although, that WD wasn't also. I was going to say, maybe, maybe I, uh, maybe I'm saying things, maybe, maybe I'm finally telling his truth. Maybe you're onto something. Well, that's something. Well, yeah. maybe this is a different love story than I thought. Still oh. toxic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. Still toxic. God, yes. Yes. Uh, Clyde tried to make a run for it, hoping to find the gang another car, but the bridge was guarded by police. Clyde fired at them, but missed because of his shoulder wound. A deputy returned fire, knocking the BAR from Clyde's hands. Clyde emptied a pistol at the officers and joined W.D. and Bonnie, hidden in the brush. The three decided to press on, so W.D. carried Bonnie on his back, so they crossed through a river and climbed a hill. Clyde did have that shoulder injury, so I assume that's why he didn't carry her. But again, the other guy was shot three times. (laughs) Again, yeah, maybe he did love her. Uh, After passing through a cornfield, Clyde, Bonnie, and W.D. came to a farmhouse where they caught the owner and his 19-year-old son off guard. Clyde pointed his forty-five pistol at the men and told them he needed a car. The farmer and his son who had no idea the gun was really empty, happily obliged and offered the gang a vehicle. Two hours later, with Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. long gone, the posse noticed a large fallen tree that they thought the fugitives might have used as a hiding spot. When they got closer, Buck took a shot at them. But before he could fully fire, he was hit in the shoulder by a local dentist who happened to have National Guardsmen training. Again, vigilantes have day jobs, too, I guess. Yeah. Uh, By this point, the bandage from Buck's head wound had fallen off, and brain tissue was coming out of the wound. The police took Buck and Blanche into custody as a horde of locals arrived on scene, hoping to snag some sort of souvenir. Some of them climbed trees to pull bullets out of the tree trunks. Police searched the gang's vehicle and found a Bible and more than 30 weapons, including automatic pistols and ammunition. Police asked Blanche, who was traveling with them, she would only tell them Jack Sherman, 
which was W.D.'s alias. Blanche's eye was finally treated at a hospital, but despite two surgeries, doctors were unable to save the sight in her left eye. Mm. Blanche was then transferred to a jail in Missouri. Blanche pled guilty to assault with intent to kill for the shootout in Platte City, Missouri in September 1932. She was sentenced to 10 years. Within two days of being caught, Buck's health continued to decline. His fever reached 105 degrees and he fell into a coma the next day. Just days later, on July 29th, 10 days after originally being shot, Marvin Ivan Barrow, known as Buck, died at the age of 30. In his four months with the Barrow gang, he was involved in three murders, four shootouts, a kidnapping, and numerous robberies and burglaries. When Buck was buried, his mother, Cumi, chose to leave his headstone empty as she believed that Clyde would soon be buried beside him. Whoa. Police asked Cumi to make a public plea for Clyde to return, but she refused. She said, quote, I'm going to let him live his last few days the way he wants to, without any instructions or pleas from me. Buck's death wouldn't be the only tragedy for the Barrow Gang, as just three months later, in October 1933, tragedy struck the Parker family. Bonnie's two-year-old niece Jackie, Billy's daughter, died from a sudden illness, and just days later, Jackie's four-year-old brother Buddy also died from a sudden illness. Oh my God. It is unsure as to what the children had. Some have guessed possibly a flu or typhoid, although the family just said it was some sort of stomach disorder. After the ambush, Bonnie Clyde and W.D. switched cars at a gas station before abandoning it in Nebraska. They found quiet places to camp where they could lay low and heal their wounds. In August, they robbed the Illinois National Guard Armory, for the second time. I'm just surprised by how easy it is to rob an armory. Uh, they traveled to Mississippi, where W.D. decided he was done with a life of crime. He then headed to Texas, where he got a job picking cotton. Police finally learned of W.D.'s connection to Bonnie and Clyde from a tip they received in mid-November. When they spoke with W.D., he fully admitted to his part were to his time as part of the Barrow Gang, although he lied and said he didn't participate in any shooting, claiming he was either not there or unconscious every single time they used weapons. He claimed the real second shooter at every one of their uh, robberies was Bonnie. W.D. told police, about every crime that Bonnie and Clyde committed during his eight months spent with them, although he was sure to say he participated against his will. He even told police that Clyde was the one who shot and killed Doyle Johnson in Temple, Texas, although I'm fairly certain that was W.D. Uh, at the time, police didn't even know the Barrow gang were involved. They had already blamed a man in Dallas for it. Uh, during his conversations with the police, W.D. claimed Clyde forced him to join the gang, and they would often handcuff him to a tree so he wouldn't escape. He also claimed that he was only 17 at the time of his crimes, in an obvious attempt to avoid a harsher penalty. Right. And to that, quickly, I say, W.D., why would they force you to come along with them when they would kidnap somebody, they would just let them go in the middle of nowhere? 
Why would they kidnap somebody for eight months? No. So stop it, you boy gang. Yep. On November 21st, 1933, Bonnie and Clyde met up with the Barrow family to celebrate Cumie's 59th birthday. They met on a deserted road just west of Dallas. When their visit was over, the couple asked to meet up the meet up with the family the next day, which was something they didn't usually do. And what Bonnie and Clyde didn't realize was that police had an informant in the Barrow family, because when they arranged to meet with the family again the next day, police were tipped off to the location and the time. Police never publicly admitted the identity of the informant, except to say it was a Barrow cousin. So police show up at the meeting point and are crouched in a ditch about 75 yards from the road. Bonnie and Clyde arrive. Officers start shooting, which causes Clyde to return fire and speed off with a flat tire. Further down the road, Clyde stole another car, grabbed their guns, some of them anyway, and once again, Bonnie and Clyde were off. Police weren't able to chase after them because their vehicles were parked too far away. Uh, They later found Bonnie and Clyde's abandoned vehicle with clothing, makeup, medicine, a sack of pennies, and 11 license plates inside. Both Bonnie and Clyde took a bullet to the leg during the ambush, but neither shot was fatal. The couple continued on to Oklahoma. Skip ahead to January 1934. Bonnie and Clyde met up with ex-convict Jimmy Mullins. Mullins was convicted of multiple narcotics crimes as well as burglary and served time in Illinois, Kansas, and Eastham Farm in Texas. While at Eastham, Jimmy met former Barrow gang member Raymond Hamilton, who arrived there in August 1933. Raymond bragged to Mullins that his friend Clyde was going to break him out, but months went by and nothing happened. Then it looked like Mullins was going to be getting out, so Raymond offered to pay Mullins $2,000 if Mullins would help break him out of prison. And my question is, did Raymond have that kind of money? $2,000 in 1934 is like $43,000 in 2022. Whether Raymond had the money or not, Mullins believed him and agreed to it. After being paroled on January 10th, Mullins headed to Dallas to meet up with Raymond's brother, Floyd Hamilton. The pair were going to use the original East Ham escape plan that Clyde and Ralph Fultz had come up with years before. Then Floyd and Mullins met up with Bonnie and Clyde, who agreed to hide two 45 caliber pistols in the brush near an East Ham work area. On January 13th, Bonnie, Clyde, Mullins, and Floyd went to East Ham Farm. Floyd and Mullins took an inner tube they filled with pistols and ammunition and hid it under a bridge near a woodpile. They returned to the car and headed north. The next morning, Floyd took his wife to visit Raymond to tell him about the escape plan. Two days later, on January 16th, Raymond and fellow inmate Joe Palmer grabbed the guns from the inner tube and shot at the guards. Raymond had some problems as he tried to fire his gun, but the clip fell out after his first shot. Two guards were hit, including Major Joseph Croson, Major being his first name, and also his title. So I guess technically he was Major Major (laughs) Croson, which is something else. Um, He got shot and ended up dying 11 days later from his wounds 
at just 33 years old. Raymond and Palmer ran to a ditch with two other inmates, and they all crammed into the waiting car. A fifth inmate tried to take advantage of the chaos and made a run into the nearby woods, but was caught less than a day later. On January 26th, Bonnie, Clyde, and Raymond traveled to the Dallas area. Raymond paid Mullins $685 of his debt and gave $500 to his brother Floyd. Around this point, Mullins, Floyd, and one of the unknown escapees left the group, so now there was Bonnie, Clyde, Raymond, and an escapee named Henry Methvin, who was a 21-year-old from Louisiana. In mid-February, the group was joined by Mary O'Dare, Raymond's girlfriend, who was the wife of Raymond's former partner, who was in prison at the time. The uh, Once again, you get couples in a small space together. They started bickering. Bonnie and Mary didn't really get along. Mary wanted to go out to fancy dinners. Bonnie and Clyde wanted to stay out of view as much as possible. On February 27th, Clyde and Raymond robbed a bank in Lancaster, Texas of about $4,000. Raymond wanted Mary to get a cut. She did nothing to earn it. Uh, Clyde refused. Raymond then tried to secretly pocket Mary's cut on the down low. Clyde caught him. There was a huge fight. Uh, Within days, the couples went their separate ways. Methvin uh, decided to tag along with Bonnie and Clyde. Raymond was soon caught by police and sent to Dallas County Jail. He told police Bonnie was the one who caused the riff because she was the one who demanded a cut of the money. Now, this is the point of the story where former Texas Ranger Frank Hamer enters our story. I say former because he left the Texas Rangers in 1932 after Texas re-elected a female governor. That's right. Frank Hamer quit being a Texas Ranger because he didn't like that his boss was a woman. Ah. Saying bluntly, quote, when they elected a woman governor, I quit. Whoa! Yeah. Who was the female governor? Well, that leads us to a female first side note. Hey! Yeah. As of August 2021, 45 women have served as governor of a U.S. state. The first woman in the position of governor was Carolyn... Uh, B. Shelton, who served as acting governor of Oregon for one weekend because the incoming senator got sick and couldn't assume the office early. Sorry, the incoming governor got sick, couldn't come in early, and the outgoing governor left before his term was over. So there was that one weekend and they let her do it. Uh, The first official female governor of a U.S. state was Nellie Davis Taylor Ross, who was the 14th governor of Wyoming from 1925 to 1927. And as of May 2022, Nellie is the only female governor in Wyoming's history. Wow. The second female governor and the one who apparently got under Frank Hamer's skin was Miriam Ferguson, who was known affectionately as Ma. She was elected for her first term in 1925 and elected for a second term in 1933. 
Ma was first elected after her husband, James Ferguson, known affectionately as Pa, (laughs) was impeached and forced to resign. At least 40 Texas Rangers resigned after Ma was elected for a second time. And to them I say, ya-boying. Ya-boying! As of August 2021, 19 states have never had a female governor. I'm not going to list them all off, but a sampling includes California, Illinois, Maryland, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Somehow I'm shocked by California. I don't know why. They had the Terminator. Why wouldn't they have a woman? The point is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So... Frank Hamer leaves the Texas Rangers because he didn't want to work for a woman. And to that, I say, you're making it really hard for me to want to root for you, Frank. Since Frank wasn't exactly busy, uh, the Texas prisoner director, Lee Simmons, called him to ask if he would personally head the search for Bonnie and Clyde. Frank agreed and officially started on February 10th, 1934. In the last two weeks of February, Frank traveled 1,397 miles, or 2,248 kilometers, following leads throughout Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Arkansas. But one lead Frank never seemed to get was maybe just keep an eye on their families. Because between February 13th and the end of March, Bonnie and Clyde made seven or eight trips home to visit. (laughs) I always found it amazing that the cops never picked up on it sooner. Uh, The last visit was April 1st, which happened to be Easter Sunday. Bonnie gifted her mother, Emma, a white rabbit that she had named Sunny Boy. Hours later, Bonnie, Clyde, and Henry Methvin pulled their car to the side of the road in Grapevine, Texas, so that Clyde could get some sleep. At 3.30 p.m., two state highway patrol officers on motorcycles saw the parked car and went to see if the occupants were okay. As they saw the officers approach, Clyde planned to kidnap them, but Henry Methvin opened fire. Both officers died at the scene. 26-year-old Edward B. Wheeler and 22-year-old H.D. Murphy, who was on his very first day on patrol. Oh, wow. One witness who claimed to have seen two men shooting at the police said the shorter of the two, which would have been Henry Methvin, uh, walked over to the cops who were lying on the ground, rolled one of them over, and shot him point blank in the chest. Another witness who was standing on the porch of his farmhouse about 400 yards from the incident said he saw a man and a woman shoot at the officers, and that the smaller of the two, who the witness believed was a woman, turned over the officer and shot him in the chest. At the time, police thought that Bonnie and Clyde were traveling alone, so now they believed that Bonnie wasn't the tag-along they originally thought. They believed she was a vicious killer. By April 6th, the Barrow gang were in Oklahoma, sleeping in their car on the side of the road, as it had become stuck in the mud. A passing motorist reported the vehicle to Constable Cal Campbell in Commerce, Oklahoma. Cal and Police Chief Percy Boyd went to check it out. When they approached the vehicle, they saw a weapon, so they pulled their own weapons, which caused both Clyde and Henry Methvin to start firing. 
Cal took a shot to the chest and died quickly. He was 60 years old. Methvin grabbed Percy and shoved him in the car. The problem was their car was stuck. Clyde tried to help get help from a nearby farmhouse but had no luck, so they waited until a truck passed by and then made the driver help them at gunpoint. On the road, Bonnie cleaned Percy's wounds and even bandaged his head. They drove through through to Kansas, stopping for food only once. They released Percy around midnight, about 7 miles or 11.2 kilometers away from Fort Scott, Kansas. Percy later said the gang told him they could tell the police whatever they wanted, as long it was as long as it was the truth. And Bonnie's only request was that Percy let people know, despite what the newspapers say about her, she didn't smoke cigars. <laughs> because for whatever reason, that alleged lie about her is the only thing that really bothered her. That's so funny. Yeah. On April 8th, their car was found abandoned in Kansas. Inside, police found a loaf of bread, chewing tobacco, clothing, and a Boy Scout flashlight. Police started getting desperate to catch Bonnie and Clyde. They were There were articles in Dallas newspapers about Bonnie and Clyde every single day, and the longer they were on the run, the worse the police looked. The police spoke with Clyde's exes, but got no new information. They managed to get a Barrow cousin on the police payroll as an informant. Floyd Hamilton and his stepfather were arrested and taken to jail. Uh, They were held for two weeks without charges being brought. They claimed a deputy offered Floyd $5,000 to help them capture Clyde. In mid-April, Bonnie and Clyde returned to Texas for another family visit. By then, the police had finally tapped the Barrow's phone. They heard Cumi tell a relative, quote, I've got a big pot of beans and some cornbread, which was code for Bonnie and Clyde are coming to visit. And I'll say this, I am charmed by the codes. Yeah. I think we should have more codes. But I already put that in my notes. I was like, we need to, we need codes. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm living for it. Uh, Police planned to raid a well-known hideout of the Barrow Gang, but it was called off when Bonnie and Clyde appeared to not be in the area. Henry Methvin's parents, Ivan and Avi, met with police and were told their son's record would be wiped clean if they helped to set up Bonnie and Clyde. And while they got this promise in writing from Texas prison director Lee Simmons, they were told... Police couldn't give any assurances about whatever crimes their son committed out of state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On May 10th, four officers swooped in to the Barrow family gas station in Dallas and took Clyde's mother, Cumi, in for an interview. But they didn't take her to the nearest station. They drove her 100 miles or 160 kilometers away to Tyler, Texas. Cumi wasn't given a phone call or a lawyer, and she was kept in jail overnight. Whoa. The next day, yeah. The next day, Cumi was taken to the courthouse for more questioning. Then she was sent back to jail. She was taken home the next day. Cumi said they asked her if she saw Clyde on Easter Sunday. She said no. Then they asked her if Clyde was going to come home for Mother's Day, to which, again, she said no. Quote, They ought to know a mother won't tell nothing on her boy, even if she did know something. 
Bonnie's sister, Billy Parker Mace, was arrested just before Cumie, as were Bonnie's aunt and her sister-in-law. Billy was released before being arrested again on May 19th, along with Floyd Hamilton. Billy and Floyd were charged with the murders of officers Edward B. Wheeler and H.D. Murphy in Grapevine, Texas on Easter Sunday. The witness, who claimed it was a woman who fired point-blank at the officers, was brought in to look at mugshots. The witness couldn't identify Bonnie or Clyde, but he identified Billy and Floyd, who were not there. Oh, great. Okay. Uh, Again, the witness was 400 yards away, which is 365 meters. And I don't know how accurate you could be at that distance, I mean, apparently not very, because he couldn't identify Bonnie or Clyde, who were actually there. During one of the gang's trips home, Ivy Methvin, uh, Henry's dad, told his son about the arrangement he had with the police and wiping his record clean. On May 21st, 1934, Henry told his parents that he'd try and separate from Bonnie and Clyde the next day. On May 22nd, around 9 a.m., Clyde sent Henry into Shreveport, Louisiana, to get sandwiches from the cafe. Clyde drove around waiting for him, but when Clyde drove off, Henry left the cafe, stole a car, and went to his brother's house. When Bonnie and Clyde couldn't find Henry, they checked his parents' house in Bienville Parish, but his father Ivan, known as Ivy, said he hadn't seen them, but they should check back the next morning at 9.15 a.m. Ivy then told the sheriff that Bonnie and Clyde would be at his house the next morning, so they, the sheriff gathered a posse, which included Frank Hamer, Manny Galt, who worked for Huntsville Prison, County Deputy Bob Alcorn, County Deputy Ted Hinton, who was the uh, regular customer of Bonnie's back when she was a uh, waitress, Sheriff Henderson Jordan, and Deputy Prentice Oakley. Of the six, only Bob Alcorn actually knew what Clyde looked like. The mugshots they had of him were severely outdated. Once the posse was compiled, Hamer told Lee Simmons, quote, The old hen is about ready to hatch. I think the chickens will come off tomorrow. Again, the code words... I I think we need more code words than what we currently have in our relationship is what I'm saying. God, yes. I live for code words. I mean, God knows I'll forget what they mean, but that's not the point. That's part of the fun. Yeah, we need to write them down. I know. Uh, there was a single road that led to the Methvin's farm that had a hill on one side and heavy brush. So they had, it was a perfect hiding spot. The posse took position on May 23rd, 1934, with a full arsenal of shotguns, automatic rifles, and pistols. Ivy joined the group at dawn. He was meant to act as a decoy, as they worried that Clyde would drive by too fast. But if Clyde saw Ivy, he'd slow down. So Ivy's truck was put on the side of the road with a tire removed. Bonnie and Clyde grabbed sandwiches from the cafe for breakfast and then drove out to Ivy's in their gray Ford V8. Clyde saw Ivy and, as predicted, he slowed down to a near stop. A logging truck appeared on the road, so Clyde rolled the car ahead to make room, 
and Oakley got antsy and fired a few shots, hitting Clyde in the front of his left ear, likely killing him instantly. Bonnie let out an unearthly primal scream, and then it was just silent. The posse then opened fire, sending dozens of bullets into the vehicle. The car rolled towards the ditch as the posse fired more shots through the back window and the passenger side. Part of Bonnie's right hand was blown off, Oh, as was part of Clyde's skull. Oh my god! There was blood and tissue throughout the car. Both Bonnie and Clyde had guns, but neither had the chance to use them. Clyde was 25 years old, and Bonnie was 23. Police found BARs, shotguns, pistols, gun clips, a thousand rounds of ammo, as well as suitcases, makeup, magazines, 15 license plates, canned food, a saxophone, and sheet music. (laughs) After the ambush, some of the posse claimed that they gave the fugitives the chance to surrender. Although the fact that Bonnie and Clyde didn't have time to use their weapons makes me believe otherwise. Yeah. Ted Hinton pulled out a 16-millimeter camera and started to film the scene, zooming in on the bullet holes in the car, which brings me to a brief, Christy was annoyed by a movie, so now we all have to hear about it. Side note. (laughs) So as part of my deep dive, I watched the 2019 movie The Highwaymen. It focused on the posse, mostly Frank Hamer and Manny Galt, uh, as he chased Bonnie and Clyde. Was it necessary to the research? No. But when I found out it starred both Kevin Costner and Woody Harrelson, was I going to deny it? I was not. I gave it a chance. Now, I know with movies, especially like this, Writers like to take liberties to make things more interesting uh, or exciting. But they made Ted Hinton, this sweet, innocent boy who claimed a newspaper offered him money and a video camera to film the scene after their deaths. The character was outright repulsed by the very idea of a camera being there. And yet, while I don't know if he was paid or not to do it, I do know that Ted Hinton did bring a camera to the ambush, and he did film the vehicle and the bodies afterwards. The footage was used at the end of this movie, which made me scream at the TV, and that's the footage he got. Again, watching movies with me is a delight. That's a callback to last week's episode. Uh, Just days after their deaths, uh, a Bonnie and Clyde movie was released. It contained the footage that Hinton recorded from the ambush. A week later, Cumi Barrow went to the Majestic Theater screaming, You can't do that to my boy, as she ripped a photo from a display. She was removed by police, but they immediately released her. The movie was referred to as, quote, the most sensational film ever made. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Locals, after the ambush... Locals arrived on scene at the sound of gunfire and took any souvenir they could. They tried to pry pieces of glass from the car, bullets, shell casings, anything they could get their hands on, even ripped pieces of clothing from Bonnie and Clyde, as well as some of their hair. And that is a level of gross that I can't get past. 
But my annoyance with mob mentality uh, is going to creep up again in a moment. Oakley, Jordan, Hinton, and Hamer went to a nearby town to get a coroner and a tow truck and to call Lee Simmons to give the news. Two hours after the shooting, a tow truck arrived to take the vehicle to Arcadia, Louisiana, about 10 miles or 16 kilometers away. It purposely made a stop outside of a school in Gibbsland. And I just assume this was like a scared straight situation and show all the little kids what happens if you're bad or go against the law or whatever. And they they claim like, oh, the bodies, the bodies were covered in blankets. But the amount of students who were who described it as gruesome makes me wonder if maybe the blankets weren't enough. Oh, my God. Uh, The car was locked behind a fence and the bodies were taken to Conger's furniture store, which doubled as a funeral home. The coroner said that there were more than two dozen bullet holes in each body. Bonnie was still wearing her wedding ring from Roy Thornton, although it should be noted she was also wearing another ring that Clyde had given her. 500 people crammed into the store trying to catch a glimpse of the bodies. They ripped a door off its hinges, they climbed on furniture, and ended up causing $1,000 in damage. The coroner claims he had to spray embalming fluid at the crowd to keep them back. Oh my god. Yeah. Emma Parker fainted when a reporter told her about Bonnie's death, and she refused to bury Bonnie next to Clyde as Bonnie had requested. Bonnie's poem, The Story of Bonnie and Clyde, appeared in Daily Times-Herald in Dallas just months after her death. In the poem, Bonnie said that Bonnie and Clyde would be buried together. But Emma blamed Clyde for Bonnie's troubles, saying, quote, Clyde had her for two years. Look what he did to her. Now she's mine. Nobody else has a right to her. 10,000 people packed the funeral home at Sparkman Holtz Brand near downtown Dallas to see Clyde's remains. While the doors remained closed, the mob started pulling up flowers and shrubs and throwing them. Police were called, but they didn't have nearly enough officers to control a crowd of that size. And honestly, throwing a tantrum to get your way is gross. Throwing your tantrum to see a dead body is more gross. Clyde's father, Henry Barrow, finally agreed to let the public see Clyde's body. Hundreds of people pushed through. But when Henry overheard people say they were glad that Clyde was dead, Henry asked the doors to be closed again. At McCammy Campbell Funeral Home across town, 20,000 people lined up to see Bonnie's remains. The mob trampled the lawn and knocked down a fence. When the doors were opened to the public, nearly 5,000 people went through every hour, destroying the funeral home's expensive carpets. Overall, an estimated 50,000 people viewed the bodies of Bonnie and Clyde. Clyde Barrow was buried after a simple, small, private ceremony on Friday night. Bonnie Parker Thornton was buried the following afternoon Billy Parker Mace was released from prison to attend the funeral. She was one of approximately 150 people to attend. The biggest floral arrangement at the funeral was sent by local newsboys, 
whose sales had skyrocketed after Bonnie and Clyde's deaths. And I find that so gross to essentially send a bouquet to say thank you. Thanks for dying, essentially, is what they're doing. Uh, Emma fainted when Bonnie's Bonnie's body was lowered. Bonnie's gravestone features a quote from a poem that her sister picked out. It says, quote, As the flowers are all made sweeter by the sunshine and dew, so this old world is made brighter by the lives of folks like you. As Cumie Barrow had predicted, Clyde and his brother Buck share a gravestone. The epitaph reads, Gone but not forgotten. At the end of May, ballistic tests were done on the weapons that were found in the car. It was found that two of the weapons had been used to kill the two patrolmen on Easter Sunday, so charges were dropped against Billy and Floyd Hamilton. When the posse were asked to give a report on what happened during the ambush, their stories were inconsistent. Hinton and Alcorn claimed they waited two days and two nights. The other four said it was simply one night. Jordan said they acted on a tip. Frank Hamer, who was in charge of the whole thing, said he personally set the trap on his own. There was no tip at all. Uh, He knew that Clyde was going to be picking up mail from a hidden spot on the road. The press later learned that Ivy Methvin was the tipster, which was proven in FBI documents and trial testimony. So Frank was talking out of his ass. Whoa. Uh, Hamer said the hardest part of the ambush was killing Bonnie. And this is an actual quote from Hamer, who I remind you is an old white man. Quote, I hate to bust a cap on a woman, especially when she's sitting down. However, if it hadn't been her, it would have been us. I have never heard the term bust a cap from anyone outside of gang culture. Yeah. Hamer publicly claimed that he knew for a fact Bonnie smoked cigars. Ugh. He didn't. But he knew that Bonnie would hate that being said. So I guess that was just his way to get one up on her after her death. Only cigarettes were found in the car after they died. In August 1934, Henry Methvin received a conditional pardon and was never tried for the Easter grapevine murders, which he was involved with. That same month, a book written by Emma Parker and Nell Barrow Cowan was published. It was called Fugitives, the story of Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker, as told by Bonnie's mother and Clyde's sister. According to historians, it is full of errors and completely romanticizes Bonnie and Clyde, making excuses for even their worst crimes. And honestly, this isn't the grossest thing that Bonnie and Clyde's family did for money after the deaths of their children. In either 1935 or 1936, Clyde's parents and Bonnie's mother traveled with a show called Crime Doctor, which traveled with county fairs. With Crime Doctor, the parents appeared on stage with the car that Bonnie and Clyde died in, answering questions to the crowd. Oh, God. In January 1935, 23 people with ties to Bonnie, Clyde, and Raymond Hamilton were charged with harboring or assisting the fugitives. This includes Cumi Barrow, Clyde's siblings Marie and Elsie, Emma Parker, Billy Parker Mace, 
W.D. Jones, Henry Methvin, Floyd Hamilton, Ray Hamilton, and the Hamilton's parents. It was the largest indictment of its kind in the U.S. at the time. Clyde's father, Henry, was not charged. The trial lasted three weeks, included three days of testimony. The defense even tried to argue that Cumey was the ringleader of the Barrow Gang. Five of the accused pled guilty, and another 15 were found guilty by a jury. Cumey Barrow, Emma Parker, and the Hamilton's mother all spent 30 days in jail. Billy Parker Mace, Raymond's girlfriend Mary O'Dare, and Blanche Barrow were sentenced to one year plus a day. Marie, Clyde's 16-year-old sister, was sentenced to an hour. Oh. I assume again. That was a scared straight thing? Yeah. Uh, The men who were found guilty got sentences between 60 days to two years. Henry Methvin got 15 months, and W.D. Jones got two years in addition to convictions that he had for other crimes. Uh, Raymond Hamilton was not tried uh, because he escaped prison just prior to the trial and was on the run once again. He was caught in April 1935 and sentenced to death for the murder of Major Croson during the East Ham breakout. Raymond and his accomplice, Joe Palmer, were both executed using the electric chair shortly after midnight on May 10th, 1935. Raymond was 21 at the time, and Joe Palmer was 32. That's something you forget, and this is just how young so many of these people actually were. Yeah. So what happened to other people in this story? Well, in 1938, for unknown reasons, someone got angry with Clyde's siblings, Marie and Elsie, and fired a shotgun into the Barrow house. Cumey was hit in the face and lost sight in one of her eyes. Oh, my God. In 1942, Cumey died after a short illness. She was 67. Her husband, Henry, passed away in 1957. The oldest Barrow child, Jack, was accused of shooting a man in 1939. He was sent to prison where he died in 1947 at the age of 52. Blanche Barrow served five of her 10-year sentence and was released. She later remarried and died in 1988 at the age of 77. Emma Parker died in 1944 at the age of 59. Billy Parker Mace died in 1993 at the age of 80. W.D. Jones served his time, and after release, he got married. His wife died in the late 1960s, which caused W.D. to spiral into a serious substance abuse problem. He died in 1974 after being shot during an argument. Henry Methvin was pardoned, tried for the death of Cal Campbell. Uh, He was found guilty, sentenced to death on December 20th, 1935, In September 1936, his sentence was commuted to life in prison, and he was paroled six years later. I can't believe you can go from life in prison to paroled six years later. Uh, In November 1945, he was arrested for fighting and carrying a shotgun. Then 11 months later, Methvin was arrested again for driving under the influence and an attempted robbery in Shreveport, Louisiana. On April 19, 1948, Methvin tried to cross a railroad track while intoxicated. He was hit by a train. He was 36 years old. Wow. Ted Hinton 
wrote a book called Ambush. In 1977, which was published in 1979 after his death, Hinton claimed the real reason that Ivy helped trap Bonnie and Clyde was because he was forced to by Frank Hamer. He also claimed the original posse agreed the last surviving member would tell the truth, although many people have disputed his version of events. Prentice Oakley, the man who got antsy and shot first at the final ambush, succeeded Henderson Jordan as the sheriff of Bienville Parish. Oakley died in 1957 at the age of 52. And what about the car that Bonnie and Clyde were in when they were ambushed? Well, in 1973, a casino in Nevada bought the car at an auction for $175,000, which is equivalent to like $1.1 in 2022. In 1997, that same casino paid $85,000 for the bloodstained shirt that Clyde was wearing the day he died. As of May 2022, the car is on display at Whiskey Pete's Hotel and Casino in Prim, Nevada. In 2012, two of the guns once owned by Bonnie and Clyde were sold at an auction for $504,000. And in 2017, a ring that Clyde gave to Bonnie sold for $25,000. Gibbsland, Louisiana, where Bonnie and Clyde bought breakfast just before their ambush, is home to the authentic Bonnie and Clyde Festival. The festival began in 1992 and features look-alike contests, as well as a reenactment of that final ambush. Three years later, festival organizers opened the authentic Bonnie and Clyde Museum. And in 2005, a competitor opened... Bonnie and Clyde Ambush Museum, just a block away. They have various souvenirs, including Clyde's saxophone and some of the license plates that were found in the vehicle. There is also a replica of their car, complete with bullet holes and mannequins inside that are covered in blood. I just don't see why that's necessary. But to each their own. But hey, again, photos on our socials. Two museums dedicated uh, to the famous duo in one town isn't that surprising, uh, as their legacy has lived on long since their deaths. In 1938, director of the newly named FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, was upset because little kids were playing bandits. They tried, like, they would play Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, It drove him crazy, so he released a book about Depression-era bad guys like Bonnie and Clyde or Chicago bank robber John Dillinger called Persons in Hiding. In the book, Hoover pledged to, quote, tell the truth about these rats and their dirty, filthy, diseased women. Oh my god. Yep, Hoover seemed nice. A movie based on the book was released in 1939. But there have been numerous other books and movies made about Bonnie and Clyde. There was a 1937 melodrama called You Only Live Once, starring Sylvia Sidney and Henry Fonda. Their lives also inspired the 1950 movie Gun Crazy and the 1958 movie The Bonnie Parker Story. There was a miniseries in 2013 starring Holiday Granger and Emile Hirsch. It also starred Sarah Hyland, William Hurt, and Holly Hunter. Uh, Then there's the 2019 Netflix film that I've already complained about, The Highwaymen. 
Uh, but probably the film most well-known based on the couple would be the 1967 movie Bonnie and Clyde, starring Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. It also has Gene Hackman and Gene Wilder. The movie made $70 million worldwide at the box office, which is equivalent to over $602 million in 2022. The movie was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, including costume design, writing, best picture, best director, and all four top acting nominations, including a second best supporting actor nomination. The movie ended up winning best cinematography and Estelle Parsons won for best supporting actress. Uh, Random facts that I didn't have a place to mention until now. At the police headquarters in Dallas, a lieutenant had life-size standouts, stand-ups made of Bonnie and Clyde, just to remind the officers that they were still on the run. Oh, boy. I wish I could see them. Yeah. Because I'd like to know what the quality was in 1930 stand-ups. Same. Uh, The Barrow Gang preferred to rob gas stations and grocery stores as opposed to banks. Clyde wasn't looking for fame or fortune. All he wanted was to get revenge against the Texas prison system for the abuse that he suffered while incarcerated. Clyde preferred to kidnap cops and set them free in the middle of nowhere. But he killed when he had to, as he said he would absolutely never go back to prison. It is hotly debated as to whether Bonnie Parker ever fired a gun. Many who were around Bonnie and Clyde said they never saw Bonnie fire a gun ever. And others said she could load a gun, but they've never saw her fire it. Most people claim Bonnie shot some of the victims. Um, Those people were all people who were there at the time and were trying to take the heat off themselves. Uh, Police used photos of Bonnie posing with a gun as proof that she was a vicious shooter, but it looks like a child fooling around posing for a camera is what it looks like. So it only seems fitting uh, for to end this with the end of a poem written by Bonnie Parker. This is from the story of Bonnie and Clyde. It says, quote, Someday they'll go down together, they'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief, to the law a relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm now Christy Oxborough. <laughs> I tried. Listen, you got there. You really got there. Um, let's take a quick break. I'm going to try and collect myself because that second glass of wine is hit hard and uh, these notes are chaos and a half. Oh, uh, so fill up your glass. I might have one more. <laughs> hit the can <laughs> one more time and we'll be right back to wrap it up about Bonnie and Clyde on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Bonnie and Clyde. And I want to say just off the off the get, my perception, and I realize as I'm about to say this, I don't, I guess I, I've never seen a movie about Bonnie and Clyde. I guess I just really didn't know anything about them, if I'm being completely honest. Sure. 
other than the like general perception. My general perception was that they were thrill killers, that they were like on the run and killed for fun. And I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but uh, you know, but honestly, like I I thank you very much. I honestly did. I had no idea. It's so interesting to me that it's possible that Bonnie never even shot a gun and that they were really kind of not that you ever need to kill anybody. And I'm not suggesting that, but it di- it doesn't feel like, again, they, they aren't. The, I think it's fair to say they aren't the thrill killers that I perceived them to be. They kind of killed because sure. that was part of the whole thing, but it wasn't like they were going out of their way to kill people for fun, basically. They were doing it because they were, you know, embroiled in this life of crime rather than like, sure. It's not natural-born killers. I was just going to say, yes, they were not natural-born killers. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, All right. So these notes, I am going to preface this by saying, dear listeners, I have not felt this intoxicated in some time. I've only had two (laughs) glasses of wine. These notes are pure chaos, and I please invite you to take a ride with me. And please don't think I'm being glib. Um, Of course, we're talking about loss of life and all of the above, but I've gone on some real tangents here, so buckle in. Number one. These aren't numbered, but this is the first one. (laughs) You mentioned the name Nell, and I just wrote, God, I hated that movie. Unrelated. May yeah. May Chickapay, I did not care for it. Maybe I need to revisit it as an adult, but as a teen, oh, I, I was like, it. this is a hard watch. Um, Clyde Chestnut Barrow. Chestnut. Yeah. Roasting on an open fire. Um, <laughs> I like that he was described as a good boy and that he played a saxophone of all things. And I like that yeah. upon their death, they were found with a saxophone. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That it was like, I am committed to continuing to play the saxophone. And I wonder if it was a bit of a turn on for Bonnie. I don't know. Um, well, with the mouth work required. Yeah, tongue that read. Why I am so sorry. I'm so very sorry. Tongue that read. Huh. Well, I'm writing that quote down. <laughs> <laughs> Next one. Rowena, Texas. Shout out to Ruthie Davis. <laughs> Sure, sure. Um, you know, I'm not Ruthie Davis. What am I talking about? Ruthie Davis is a is a shoe designer. I'm talking, of, of course, about uh, Ruthie Connell, excuse me, who played Rowena on Supernatural, who was a guest on my old podcast, and she is a peach, just a delight. Ruthie Davis uh, designs a very high-heeled set of shoes. I enjoy them. Um, you mentioned her getting married, Bonnie getting re- married to a, a gentleman named Roy at age 16. And I do have to say that whenever I hear the name Roy, I think of Overboard. Because Goldie Hawn's character just keeps calling the one the one kid Roy. Um, again, I'm not well. I think there's something interesting. Because here's this is the dichotomy of Lauren Ash. Now I'm going to swing into a real thought for a second. I think there's something interesting about the fact that Bonnie wore that wedding ring until the day she died from sure. Roy. Yeah. And it's interesting to me also, psychologist hat on, that when Clyde went into prison, she got a new boy. She was visiting him every day, and then eventually she got a new boyfriend. That says to me she was fearful of losing him, just like she had lost Roy. I think that a lot of this for her, I think, is surrounding the trauma of having lost that young love. And then she kind of projected onto the next guy, Clyde, that it was like, I have to hold on to you no matter what. I don't want to go through that pain again. When she talked about, you know, 
when he goes, I want to I want to go to all those kinds of things. That feels to me like, again, unresolved trauma. Yeah, sounds right. Back to the chaos. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. But seriously. Um, <clears throat> new boyfriend. I've already hit that. Clyde Champion Barrow. I mean, come on. Um, you said Raymond Hamilton. All I thought was Raymond Hamilton. Um, it's, I was going to go into a Hamilton song. There uh, it is. For right. musical, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to tip my hand, uh, and us have to pay a price. Aunt Nelly. Then I just thought of hit hip hop artist Nelly. <laughs> Next one. Um, <laughs> when I, oh, wait, what, what is, oh, I was going to go into that song and it didn't hit right. Was it? Bye um, bye baby. Don't send them a minute. Well, that was, yes. I think that was. Wasn't that Nelly? I do believe that was, yes. But also, I was going with, um, all I think about is you, oh, even when I'm with my boo, oh. Yeah, him and uh, Kelly Rowland. That's nice. Yeah. Um, Interesting about this abuse cycle that they were in. Again, you mentioned they'd yell at each other. Clyde would get physical. Then he would kiss her and it would be over, which again, classic abuse cycle. The abuse happens. And there's a makeup, and then you kind of go into this holding phase until it starts again. Um, again, I'm not suggesting that it was a healthy relationship at all or a non-abusive relationship. Um, I'm just saying that I think that for her, a factor was that she was terrified to lose him like she had lost Roy. Sure. The image of her using a hairpin to take bullet fragments out of his arm, I don't know if that's been in a Bonnie and Clyde movie, but it should be because that is something that's going to stick with me. Um, horrifying, horrifying, but I mean, they took care of each other, I guess. Oof. Um, okay. Uh, again, I just wrote down, this is the first time I've almost vomited on an episode. It was when you were talking about her <laughs> getting burned so badly by acid. Yeah. Then you brought up True Detective Mysteries. And to that, I'd like to say, over this past weekend, I was revisiting some old films while I was doing some writing. And there was an image of David Duchovny and Brad Pitt that I snapped and I put on my Instagram story and I said, true detective season four. And then people, people went nuts. They were like, oh my God, I hadn't heard. I can't find anything else out about this. And that's when I had to post a clarification slide, which said, this was a still from hit movie, California. It was, it, I was joking. I just, it was the image of the two of them. I got excited about seeing them on screen sure. together again. Would I love that as a series? Heck yeah. But again, just a joke. I love um, the idea that people thought now Brad and David, for first name basis, yep. um, look anything like 90s, early 90s, Brad early and 90s, David. Yeah. Also, give that movie a rewatch because I've been watching some older film films lately and California with a K for those who don't know, California, it holds up. It just does. I mean, there's like some things where you're like, it, like the overall premise. I'm just like, do we buy that? I guess we do. But in terms of like the, the journey and the storytelling and the performances, oh, so good. So is, good. Is now a bad time to say I've never seen it. I had a feeling you hadn't, and I didn't want to out you, so that was just me gently, gently prodding. <laughs> All right. Also, it, keep in, it, just think about the Mandalorian. It's a good one. 
I'm going to get you. But I already know what's happening. I know. I can't make you do it. I'm just going to show you a series. You know, I just need to make a super cut of my favorite moments. That's what I need to do. That, okay. Yeah. I'll watch the whole thing if you want me to watch the whole thing. No, part of me thinks you want to watch. You would rather watch me watching it than hear about me watching it. What I want is to be across the room and just out of the corner of my eye, just check in. Like, how is she reacting now? Like, that would be my dream. Yeah. But I've also said that I'll sit down and watch all the Harry Potters with you. So, again, it's a trade-off. Anyway. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. But it's going to be both of us looking at each other and being like, wow, can't believe she didn't cry. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Oh, yeah. We're being held to standards that neither of us can meet. Just know that. A hundred percent. Um, Get dressed first. Code for trouble. And then I just wrote, we're implementing this. I think that from now on, if there's yeah. ever anything going on, I'll just be like, oh, I'll I'll let you know, blah, blah, blah. I just have to get dressed first. You need to know that that means trouble. Oh, I like this. Oh, so we're just going to take their codes. Well, I think that one we can use. And then we have to make up, we can make up our own as well. But that one, I feel like I liked the, I liked the ring of it, you know? Oh, that one works. Uh, we can't use the one about a big pot of beans because no one will buy it. No, no one's going to buy that I've well, got a big do, pot of beans on the stove. I do love beans and cornbread, though. I mean, that's, again. Um, sure. Then, posse of sheriffs and vigilantes. I just wrote, I'd like an official posse. But this brings me back to when I talked about wanting that girl gang, which essentially is the same thing, I feel like. Yeah. For me, anyway. My posse would be women. Oh, 100%. But I... I love that you said posse, even in the like the the context of which we're speaking of, my brain went, oh, yeah, like a dance crew. <laughs> well, again, never say never. Never say never. <laughs> like uh, a oh, dance crew. Then I just pulled up a quick photo, a quick photo of W.D. Jones. And I guess my question is for Blanche, um, knowing that W.D. Jones, you know, shot three times, carried Bonnie to mm-hmm. safety. How does Blanche feel? I, I, Blanche requires you to look up Henry Methvin. Oh, yeah, Blanche is into it. Okay. But, like, you need to look up Henry Methvin. Okay. M E T H V I N. I will put photos of him in our uh, case file. But, oh, my God. Right. <laughs> this guy looks like a, he looks like a crooner. Like, he looks like he was a, somehow a singer his, at the time. Somehow his blue eyes are coming through in a black and white photo. Look at that. Fuck off. Yep. <laughs> there she is. Yeah. There oh, she yeah. Is. Don't worry. I absolutely thought it. Um, you wrote, or you said horde of locals. That made me think of our old days playing uh, Left for Dead and the horde of zombies. Hey. Again, like I said. It's been a long time. These are batshit. Um, now, here's a question. When the movies have been made about Bonnie and Clyde, and I know I'm going to have yeah. to visit some. Did they get into Blanche and Buck? Because I'm like, that's kind of the story I want to hear. Blanche and Buck, they were along on this ride. It feels like they were just as involved. Blanche losing vision in an eye in a terrible way. Buck going down in a blaze of glory. Like, my question, yeah, I was just like, I'd like to see that story. Some of them, they are in some of them, but not in all of them. I mean, that one that I complained about. Um, it only shows Bonnie and Clyde as like, you see them in the distance kind of thing. And that's it. Cause oh. it focuses on the men, but also makes 
the specific men, specifically Frank Hamer, seem like this underdog turned unsung hero kind of thing. Whereas it's like, oh, I don't believe that happened because he tried to lie and say there wasn't a tipster. He did this all on his own. It was all him. No big deal. And it wasn't. He yeah. also refused to work for a woman. So fuck him. Yeah, that's where I'm at, especially today. Yeah, 100% on that. Um, Major, major. I wrote down major, major. General anxiety. How I Met Your Mother. Remember that bit? Nobody? I don't know. They used to do a thing where it was either major or general. If they said something, like there was different terms, or if somebody just said it in conversation, then they would would do that. So if it was like, oh, "Oh my God, I'm having major depression, they'd go, major depression? That's very funny. It always made me laugh. I should I be revisiting that? You should. I think you should. Anyway, I I liked that show. Anyway, uh, you either said a day late, a day late, or a buck short. I don't know which you said, but I wrote down a day late, a buck short. I'm writing the report on losing and failing. I'd keep going. It's Blink One Eighty Two. Um. <clears throat> I love the fact that they always went home to visit family and that police never clued in. That just feels like, guys, we know that his mother was lying. We know that she was consistently trying to manipulate the police and the courts. Maybe the first place you go. Maybe that's the first thing you do. But yeah. Um, Code, there was a code hen. There was something, and then we used to have a, a code mother hen. So that felt like... Well, that's currently, those are currently the only codes I think we had leading up to this is Code Mother Hen and Code Ross. (laughs) They're kind of self-explanatory. Yeah. Now, you mentioned Kevin Costner and Woody Allen being a draw for you. Are they Woody Harrelson. Excuse me. So sorry. I need that clear. What did I say? You said Woody Allen. Woody Allen. God damn it. Woody Harrelson, of course. Yeah. Uh, Are Costner and Harrelson on Blanche's list? Oh, yeah. Okay, great. Both of them. Especially... Like '90s Costner, and especially anytime Harrelson. <laughs> I get that. Yeah, I recently yeah. watched The Bodyguard for the first time. I know hey. that we talked about it, but I was like, yeah. I got to do this, and I have lots of thoughts. First sure. of all, it it I mean, so many thoughts from like a filmmaking perspective, but then a, like a story perspective, but. Ultimately, I'm going to be honest, I I wanted there to be, you know, just a scotch more sex. Anyway. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. You said, I believe, Oakley, Jordan, Hinton, and Hamer, to which I wrote down, Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. <laughs> I'm losing my mind. Then there was the whole thing about everyone wanting to see the bodies, which is so bizarre to me. And I will say, as someone who has lost people in my life, I understand from a grieving perspective for people that seeing a body or seeing an urn, that there is a closure to that. I I understand as humans that it's like, you know, then you can look at it and go, okay, it's, this is really done. I'm seeing the last moment or, you know, the person going into the ground, for example, or whatever. Sure. But there's something about the public demanding mm. to see bodies that is so creepy and bizarre. And I feel like I understand that there's a voyeuristic 
you know, kind of feel to society in general and celebrity. I get that. But this just, I don't know, the fact that it was like bombing and fluid needed to be sprayed at the crowd to keep them back. Like, this is so macabre. Like, I just can't even think of like, also, who has the enough embalming fluid on hand that it's like, get the hose and the fluid. Like, that just feels impossible yeah. to me. Um, but then I wrote down, want to see a dead body? What is this? Stand by me. Shout out to my friend, Jerry O'Connell. I don't know if he listens to the show, but we're going to find out because I just gave him a shout out. <laughs> he, of course, played Vern in Stand By Me. Um, of course, but I love everywhere this is going. Yep. I've only got a few more because people are like, this is not worth our time. Some people have already skipped through this is the end. They've skipped to the next episode and that's fair. <laughs> Um, you said Hintel, Hinton and, and Alcorn, and I wrote down Finkel and Einhorn. Shout out Ace Ventura. <laughs> if, if they skipped any of this, it is their loss. <laughs> it's Ash drunk for the first time in months. Yeah, you're right. You know what? Fuck that. You're right. That is their loss. Um, you said something about a man who shot first, and I said, to me, the only man who shot first was Han Solo. The Star Wars fans will love that reference. Um, you brought up Whiskey Pete's. Of course, a casino that bought the car and then uh, uh, Clyde's shirt. I believe. Now, did it say it was in Las Vegas or just in Nevada? Because I think if I'm not mistaken. It's in Prim, Nevada or something. There it is. Yep. Because when you drive from L.A. to Vegas, there's a big, huge welcome, like, welcome to Nevada kind of thing. And I believe yeah. Whiskey Pete's is right there at the border of, of California and, and Nevada. It's a big old thing. And there's lights and whatever. I've never stopped, but it's there. Oh, well, I know what we're doing next time. <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> you brought up William Hurt. Shout out to the Sarah Jones episode. Hey. And not shout out to William Hurt. A hundred percent. He abused Marley Matlin. We don't care for him. Um, <clears throat> finally, ending on the poem. First of all, beautiful choice. Second of all, it's I know that we all contain multitudes. Like I understand that as humans, that's that's part of our thing. But these two are fascinating to me. The yeah. fact that she was committed to her poetry, he was seemingly committed to his music, his saxophone. I mean, the fact that he it was they found the <coughs> saxophone in the car as yeah, right. Um, at the, after they had they had passed to me it's just like that's so fascinating the fact again that it was like he never wanted to go back to prison he only felt that he wanted to kill out of necessity i am not in any way suggesting that anyone needs to kill out of quote necessity but putting it through their lens it wasn't that they were these thrill killers it wasn't that they wanted to murder and see people die they kind of like preferred to kidnap people and then drop them off in the middle of nowhere. And of course, back in that time, pre-cell phones, pre-all that stuff, if you pick up somebody and then drop them off in another state, like, yeah, you've kind of, you've you've incapacitated that person for a significant amount of time. So yeah. like a police officer, for example, it's kind of like, it's, <laughs> this is a terrible analogy. Was, <laughs> I, I shouldn't even say it. Oh my God, I have to now. I was going to say, it's like, it's like, you know, if there's a possum or a raccoon scratching around your home, you don't need to kill it. Just trap it and then drive it far away and release it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love long, what's happening here. Long story short, 
my energy has just gone into some sort of uh, beautiful <laughs> hurricane tornado uh, mm-hmm. do kind of a crossover. But yeah, that that's my bottom line. My bottom line here is that I think it's interesting that they were so young, that they became so prolific, that it's like almost got this kind of Billy the Kid Old West vibe to it, sure. even though I don't think that that was necessarily a part of it. But then that made me think like, oh, first of all, oh, do we need to do Billy the Kid on the show? Is that fun? Then I thought, oof, young guns. Yes, please. Um, if you haven't, revisit it, because that's another yeah. one I think that holds up. Anyway. I'll wrap this up now because, again, I've, I've really gone on for some time. But I, I thank you for your work because, again, I really, truly didn't realize, honest to God, until we were in the midst of this, that I was like, I feel like I know nothing about these people. And I think I thought I did. And I think it's so sure. interesting that they've taken on, kind of like a Billy the Kid, they've taken on this other persona that when you kind of pull back the lens for a second, it's like she was clearly this – very young, traumatized gal. He was this guy who, you know, got caught up in this life of crime. They came together in this similar hurricane tornado of of toxicity and all of the above. And then they became these prolific touchstones in pop culture for the rest of time. Like, I I feel like, you know what I mean? Like, it is really fascinating when you hear their story and you realize, like, I'm not diminishing what they did or or all of the above, but it was it's just fascinating that they became the thing. And I don't know whether it was because they were so young, because she was a woman, um, and they were kind of this like, you know, power couple for lack of a better term, or, you know, notable couple. But this sure. was fascinating. And I, I thank you for your work, is my point. You are uh as always too kind. I love the energy that's happening right now. Uh and the only thing I want to say to you is um, Woody Harrelson in Zombieland mm. and Woody Harrelson if you haven't seen it I I recommend it in the cowboy way it's him and Kiefer Sutherland as cowboys who end up going to New York is it a comedy? I think it's more like there is comedy to it, but it's more of a drama, I guess, kind of action. I don't know. Really, things get popping when they get to New York. And I'm not the only one interested in Woody Harrelson in that movie. So there is someone in that movie who's very drawn to him, and it's because he looks like he does. Look, I've written it down. I'm going to watch it. I'm into this. Well, listen, Christy Oxborough, fantastic work as always. You never leave any detail um, um, unincluded, any rock unturned. I'm out of I'm out of metaphors again. It's I've okay. had some to drink. I got two two glasses, two glasses and one sip. Anyway, I'm fine. It's been um, a while. Dear listeners, it's been a while since I've drank. You're right. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We so appreciate your support. If you haven't already, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you'd like a little bit more, you like some more of the chaos, you uh, you want a little uh, another nip into what we're, we're selling over here, go to patreon.com slash True Crime and Cocktails where you can sign up for a monthly bonus set of episodes, a live Q&A, a poll once a month to help choose an episode we choose. Uh, we cover on the show, um, which actually next week is going to be one of those, which we'll get to in a hot second. Um, 
But that, but that's the deal. And the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails merch is TrueCrewMerch.com. So check that out as well if you're interested. Now, Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? I've already teed it up. Would you prefer that I do? Yeah. Are you in a place you'd rather I do it? Yeah. <laughs> Don't you normally? I do, but then I feel bad that I do it most of the time. So then I... No, you know. I like this for you. <laughs> I just love you so much. Mm-hmm. On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Kristen Modafferi. That's right. That is our April's patrons poll pick. Again, if you're interested in taking part, go to patreon.com slash Cocktails to learn more about that. You take a vote. Your vote counts. And uh, the winner each month gets covered on an episode in this, the main feed of the show. Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Goodnight, Woody Harrelson. Oh, yeah. Good night to David Duchovny and Brad Pitt.